You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we're going to solve homelessness. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at lueepodcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. I'm Ashlyn Noble, and I'm hosting this month's show. Joining me this evening, we have Jem Newman. Hi. Lauren Bailey. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Brendan Curran-Johnson is rejoining us as our special guest. Hi. So, we're not really going to solve homelessness, but we are going to talk about a whole bunch of the ways that bureaucrats and communities are trying to address the problem of homelessness, and the pros and cons of each of these so-called solutions. We do want to make it clear that homeless people are not the problem and that we think every person deserves adequate shelter and safety and the fact that this is not happening right now is the problem. We also have a great interview coming up with Greta Christina and Alex Gabriel. They are coming to us to tell us about their new blogging collective, TheOrbit.net, as well as their own thoughts on homelessness. This one might run really long or get made into a two-parter, so we're going to jump right in with Lauren and she's going to go through the pros and cons of the shelter system. Thanks, Ashlyn. So, as Ashlyn said... One current solution we have for people facing homelessness is community shelters. As a short-term stopgap solution, shelters are an obvious choice, but a perpetual lack of funding, some safety issues, and some admittance rules make shelters a poor substitute for any permanent solution. Government cutbacks and community apathy create a serious lack of funding for publicly run shelters. There's no way around it. Mm -hmm. There's not enough money. Mm -hmm. So no funds means not enough space for all who need help. So people are turned away. There's not enough food, there's not enough clothes, and there's not enough of anything. This dearth leads to people sleeping rough or turning to less safe ways to find shelter or a meal for the night. So there is not enough money for those who Mm -hmm. need all of the services. Another option is church-run shelters or shelters run by private groups. Church-run shelters can charge a fee leading to people panhandling or other means of making money, which could lead to arrest or to assault. So these church-run shelters or public help shelters uh, may make people sit through a sermon or a talk before allowing them to access any services. So you have to go to church before you can have dinner every night. Yeah, or a talk that uh, tells you how to get back on your feet yeah. <laughs> uh, in a, a very patronizing sort of way. Yeah. You'd think that, and we're going to cover this more, so I might be jumping the gun, but we're seeing a lot of the same people a lot of the time who are using these services. So you'd think that the groups would figure out pretty quickly that this same talk is not working out so well. Because if it was, man, those people would never be coming back. But apparently (laughs) they are, so maybe the intervention's not working so great. It's in their mandate. It is in their mandate that they have to say this to everybody coming for their services. And the people working at the shelters, I'm, you know, speaking from generalizations here, but most of them don't want to have to be doing this busy work for it. So there, are, I mean, there's some true believers, but most people just want to help people. Right. Other privately run shelters may not admit people who are intoxicated or have stimulants or paraphernalia on them, or that can be confiscated before you come into the building. These can lead to a lifelong ban, so from all the different shelters around the city, if you're kicked out of one because you have a pipe on you. Don't let in that person. Yeah. Yeah. Here in Winnipeg, it's a very small community of people who run these these shelters. Right. There's not a lot of them. Yeah. The ones that I know of. So yeah, I'm sure word travels pretty fast. 
basically all of this comes down to dehumanizing people who are not living with the privileges that most of us enjoy without even thinking about it. The safety of marginalized people, like women or gay people or trans people or children, is also a big contender for issues at homeless shelters. Most drop-in shelters don't even admit children for liability purposes. Right. And family shelters are way strapped for cash. And you can't take your children to the battered woman shelter night after night after night. They have a different mandate. And, and there are also a lot of problems, especially with the church-run shelters for trans people. Um, oh, yeah. Being denied access. Mm -hmm. Anybody who doesn't fit the stereotypical norm. So if this is the main solution that we have now, what can we do to change it? How can we fix it? How can we help those who need a hand up and some basic human dignity without making them jump through hoops just to warehouse them and shrugging our shoulders at those who fall through the cracks? There are several solutions, and we privileged folk, and we here are all very privileged. Yep. We need to help get these other solutions implemented. Something else I wanted to add about safety is that even if you get a bed in, in a shelter for the night, it's not a safe place to be. Oh, you no. You have to keep your eye on everything that you own, and there's you know high risk of assault and other things that happen when you're staying in one of those places. So it's not, not a restful night's sleep. Nope. And there, it's not only safety from other people. There can be bed bugs. There can be lice. There can be all sorts of creepy crawlies. So a lot of people will avoid even attempting to go to a shelter because it's just not a good solution for them. Right. So shelters are terrible. Yeah. We can, we can generally agree on that. Not a, not a great solution for preserving human dignity. And I think in a situation, even if we didn't have sort of endemic problems with homelessness, it would still behoove us to have some sort of shelter or temporary accommodation equivalent for people who can't afford a hotel but find themselves unexpectedly without some place to sleep, right? Yeah. yeah. So this isn't ever a type of accommodation that we could get rid of entirely, even if we did solve homelessness <laughs> somehow. But there are obvious problems with the existing system, even if it were just being used as a, an emergency short-term short -term thing. And it's, and it's not being yeah. used that way, right? Because there are people who are homeless. There are a lot of people who are using it chronically, but there are also a lot of people who are using it as sort of the temporary thing. You know, they need a couple of days here and there, those kinds of things. Basically, I'm just agreeing with you. Yes. The system <laughs> right. definitely needs overhaul, but it's not something we can ever get rid of. And it isn't... From the numbers that I was looking at, I don't believe it's even the majority that are chronically... The, the, the majority that are chronically using that the same system or are chronically homeless mm -hmm. on the street. It's actually the majority that are uh, from time to time using it, but... I hope our, our listeners are familiar by now that when I make sweeping statements, I, I do not actually back those things up. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ashlyn is no fan of hyperbole. <laughs> so since we're talking about uh, long-term solutions instead of just shelters, I thought I would mention that Winnipeg specifically has a very bad history when it comes to public housing, which is one of the better solutions. Uh, it's been a problem that we've always sort of had. For instance, in 1949, there were 300 applicants per month to emergency housing, and we had about 30 placements per month. Uh -huh. And yet, in spite Whoa. of this, in the 1950s, when the federal government was offering to pay 75% of costs for public housing, in spite of that, the Winnipeg Council, uh, one Winnipeg Council alderman said, we should stay out of the housing business and leave it to the private enterprise, while at the same time 
subsidizing the suburbs that were being built in Winnipeg. <laughs> in general, like in 1973, Manitoba housing received 200 applicants per month, and there was a wait list of 2,000 people. And I thought trying to find a daycare slot was bad. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to the housing itself, in the inner city, 40% of that housing was in very poor condition. What's been happening is we don't have a lot of public housing, we don't maintain it, and then when it gets so bad that it has to be closed completely, we don't replace it, we replace it with housing that does not at all match the problems that are in place. And so what happens from all of this, because there isn't enough housing and a lot of the housing is bad, it has bad bugs, uh, they're slums. It has bed bugs. Bed bugs. So bed you bugs. said bad bugs. <laughs> I would say they that bad, bad bugs. bugs. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, so one of the problems that results from that is you have lots of people moving, which is expensive. Often they have to just leave stuff behind. I'll just mention that all of the statistics I just said are from a book called Poor Housing, which was put out by a local press, ARP Press, and I highly recommend it. And we will have links to all of these things in the show notes. Uh, so speaking of terrible solutions, we're also going to chat about the welfare or social assistance programs. And so before we start that, I should just note for uh, any of our listeners who are not from North America, what we refer to as welfare varies by, by location. So in Europe, the term welfare typically refers to government social programs like spending on health and education, the, the welfare state. While in North America, welfare usually refers to the social safety net that provides direct monetary assistance based upon means testing. So people who need money can get money from the government to meet their basic needs, which is distinct from the European usage. So our, our healthcare system would, in Europe, be called uh, welfare but it's here, we just call it Health Canada. And here, I mean, we don't really actually have a program called welfare. There are many other names it for is, it. That... It is called income assistance. Yeah. Probably because welfare is taken like a slur nowadays. <laughs> income assistance, there's also things like... You think of employment insurance? Employment insurance, yeah. Well, that's, but isn't there that's another... distinct because that's actually an insurance program that we'll pay into. And yeah, but a of. lot of people also conflate it with welfare. Yeah. And to be fair, people will often talk about Social Security in the same way, even though you pay into Social Security in the U.S. and it is it's much the same. It's separate from welfare in that respect. Yeah. Yep. And a lot of the reasons that these things get conflated is because, as Ashlyn is saying, there is a stigma associated with all of these programs, even the ones that people are paying into in a capitalist yeah. sense. <laughs> Yeah, the way that things actually work and the way that people stigmatize them are almost never logical. <laughs> anyway, Brendan. All right, so I'm going to mostly be talking uh, about the U.S. and specifically I'm borrowing a lot from the book Cheating Welfare by Karen S. Gustafson. I, once again, highly recommend it. When I talk about welfare, I'm going to be talking about the U.S. primarily. The U.S. welfare system sort of comes out of the Great Depression when deregulation and irresponsible bankers caused a financial crash and luckily we learned our lesson and... <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like that will ever happen again. Never. <laughs> In response to the Great Depression, FDR was responsible for a series of bills called the New Deal, which involved uh, creating Social Security. It created a number of the welfare systems, including like public housing, food programs, and it also was responsible for a lot of public work projects. People often think of that in terms of like large-scale infrastructure projects that were a big deal, but... There were other things involved in public work projects as well. As For instance, there was a public work arts project. There's a very good book about it, uh, Hobos to Street People by Art Hazelwood that covers it. Uh, once again, I recommend that book. <laughs> I love when Brendan comes on, we get a book list oh, to yeah. put in the show notes. 
All right, so starting in the 1970s, inflation started to outpace wages, which meant both median income and minimum wage were not keeping up with the rate of inflation. Housing was getting more expensive, and in the U.S., growth was stagnating, and then there were a series of oil shocks in which the cost of oil went up for various geopolitical reasons. Unlike uh, with the New Deal, the response was a bit different in the late 70s and early 80s. Instead, uh, support for public housing dropped. For instance, uh, so in 1978, the amount being spent on public housing in the U.S. peaked at $16 billion a year. By 1983, it had dropped down to $2 billion, and by the 2000s, we were looking at less than a billion dollars a year. Wow. Has that has that been adjusted for inflation? Like, are those numbers adjusted for inflation? I don't know offhand, and I did not bring the book that I grabbed those from. But So if they aren't adjusted for inflation... It's if they, worse. If they, yeah, if they are adjusted, adjusted for inflation, that's still really bad, but if they aren't, then that's, that's even worse. Horrifying, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's a And then just more uh, generally programs started to being cut. Uh, Often it was because it was important to balance the budget. How dare you come on the show and attack Reagan? (laughs) (laughs) I am going to make a solemn promise that I will attack Reagan every time I am on the show. (laughs) Also, I'm... I'm also really attacking Thatcher, I'm also really attacking Mulroney, just sort of the general idea of neoliberalism that has become popular since the 1970s. When I was a kid, actually, I I, I remember this very clearly, I had one of those blow-up punching bags, you know, the punching clown that would cut, yeah, and it was of Mulroney. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Of course, that was sort of shortly after he left office, so Mm, it was, uh... Very unpopular. (laughs) So, people often talk about balancing the budget, and one of the things you hear is that we should run the government like a household, which... Now, I would take that to mean don't get into expensive wars or something like that. Don't <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the neighbors. Don't war with neighbors, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but somehow that means you should never run a deficit, even though households usually are running a deficit because they own cars or they have mortgages on their house. Also, schooling is expensive. It, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, households have rarely been debt-free. <laughs> In fact, it's only getting worse. <laughs> tell me how to be debt-free. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I know. <laughs> so, I can actually tell you that. Uh, the, the white single operate middle class uh, and have a steady job. Also, don't own a car or a house. Needless to say, lots of people in the tech industry have been convinced of these ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I like my house, though. Yeah. I like my child. <laughs> I <Some days. laughs> like my magic card collection. <laughs> what about your child? <laughs> oh, I knew She's there was something too. that was... <laughs> Did you just think that one was already covered, so you're good? Yeah, yeah. No, I thought, yeah. It was mentioned. Given how successful the New Deal seemed to be, it might seem a little odd that the solution that people came up with the next time there were problems were get rid of all of the things that the New Deal created. One of the first things that happened is as soon as there was a welfare system in place, people started to worry about welfare fraud. And in the beginning, especially when there weren't uh, computer systems in place that were keeping track of people on welfare, it was fairly easy to be receiving welfare as multiple people, but that's generally a problem that we've already solved. But in response to this, the system became a lot more bureaucratic. There was a lot more paperwork that people had to fill out, and this was ostensibly to stop fraud, but because it's time-consuming, it's error-prone, and because it hurts people who are illiterate or who are not great at reading giant, long legalese, what it means in practice is that there are just fewer people who are able to apply for welfare. And even if they can apply for some, because programs, different programs may have different sets of paperwork, they may not be able to easily sign up for 
all of the things that they would be applicable for. And because there were more rules and regulations related to the bureaucracy, it was easier to fall afoul of one of those rules and then just be stripped of any sort of welfare payments. And at the same time, there was also this uh, pairing of criminalization and welfare. Ronald Reagan, who we all know and love. One of the major things he ran on when he was first running for president was the idea of the welfare queen who was living high and uh, didn't want to get a job, didn't want to work, just wanted to leech off of the rest of society. And that was a reference to a specific person, right? Uh, no, there has never been a welfare queen. Uh, so in terms of criminalization, there's always been morality policing in terms of welfare, because welfare often was originally for, I believe it was first widows after the war, but then has grown to be other women who had children but uh, did not have a male in their life to run the family, because... A lot of the American system is based off the idea of a nuclear family and patriarchy. And actually, some of the neo-reactionary rhetoric, uh, <laughs> Brendan having brought up tech, talks about how the welfare system substitutes the the government for the strong male figure, and it is uh, a return to patriarchy that will fix this problem and put women in their place and ensure that we don't need welfare, and it's all a bunch of disgusting garbage. <laughs> it's also absurd because one of the things that happens with this is women are policed about the men in their lives, and it it actively makes situations worse because if you are if you are a man who is involved with someone with a woman who is on welfare. You have to hide yourself because otherwise the welfare system will view you as the person who is responsible for paying and taking care of things. What this often means is if uh, people are in a strained relationship or are no longer in a relationship, even if the father would like to be involved in helping for their children, it is often best for them to do it in an unofficial capacity because the amount of money that will be taken away from the system will outweigh the benefit they're giving, but this also means that they're more off the hook, because if you are not going through official systems, if that man then doesn't pay any sort of child support that he he can, then the situation, you don't really have any recourse on it. And I will talk more about perverse incentives when we get to my segment. Yeah. There's also uh, a lot of cases, uh, especially in Manitoba, I know, where if you are a couple and you're both receiving some kind of benefit, if you make your relationship official or you move in together, then your benefits get cut drastically to the point yeah. where you cannot live together with your significant other. Absolutely. Or it's even worse if one person, often uh, a woman with children, is becomes involved with somebody who does have a job if they start living together. As soon as they start living together, if it's found out, then her benefits will probably be entirely cut off because his income, whether they've been together a week or a year, his income is expected to pay for that entire household now. Yeah. So it encourages uh, the perverse incentives. Sorry, Jem. But it just really <laughs> encourages people to not disclose relationships and have those kinds of issues as well. Or if they do disclose a relationship, and they didn't understand that that was the system, then now they feel really cheated. Well, and, and it takes and away opportunities to... for people to support each other, because in a lot of cases, living together 
is better for a lot of people. You can have, you can take care of each other. and Well, and you so pay so. half as much on housing. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a form of emotional support a- as absolutely. well. Absolutely. Just having another person there. Well, and, and, and it's not for everybody, but for a lot of people, yeah. That And it's such a silly idea because if you had two people who were working, you know, when Gemma and I moved in together, oh, well, my, like, they didn't stop paying me because now I'm, I'm living <laughs> with him and he's working, right? But I think the idea is that uh, because two people living together can better support themselves, they need less government money, and that's yeah. why they cut it, right? But yeah, to one a of completely the... untenable level. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, and that's one of the main issues, right? The fact that you're still way below the poverty line. Uh, in terms of criminalization, one of the things that you have is you start to get conflations of terms and policies between welfare and between the criminal system and the prison-industrial complex. Uh, for instance, the word recidivism is often used when referring to someone who's gone back on welfare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. 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 Good lord. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and you you have you have fraud investigators, and one of the th- just the way the system is set up, people are looking for fraud and welfare, but they're not looking for any mistakes the government is making where someone would be eligible for more. The only things that are happening is a reduction. You get things more and more tied when you get things like uh, in 1996, the, there was the Fugitive Felons Act in the U.S., and that meant that Social Security income, housing insurance, food stamps would be unavailable to someone if they had a warrant out in that or another state. This resulted in was a 25% drop in the number of recipients for SSI. And often these things were for parole violations, so they weren't actually even criminal acts. But if you had missed a meeting with your parole officer, that that could mean a warrant out, and that could mean that you just would not receive any public assistance. Hmm. Things got even worse. In 2001, a lot of states started adding lifetime bans for people who had drug felonies. And this was bad, first of all, because the war on drugs was explicitly, actually a Nixon aide recently said this, was explicitly created to target blacks and anti-war leftists. So the war on the war on drugs has always been a political thing. The victims of the war on drugs have been incredibly disproportionately black, Lati- black and Latino, and other non-white people. So this is an inherently political and racist thing to do. But it also means that if someone is addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol, they they are going to be less likely to try and get the help they need because if if the welfare system finds out about it, then they might find that they have lost any other source that they have for for just staying alive. Right. A lot of these uh, these laws remind me of the current like voter ID laws that are coming in yeah. in the states and have been for the last decade, because it does seem designed to fix a marginal problem at the unfortunate expense of disenfranchising a a massive number of people who tend to vote left. (laughs) Uh, It would also be worth mentioning that one, anti-vagrancy laws that homeless people often fall afoul of were originally created in the U.S. as a direct response to emancipation of slaves. Suddenly there uh, was a large black population that if they could be imprisoned could then be brought back into slavery because Mm -hmm. the 14th Amendment uh, allows slavery if you are in prison. Yep. And that's something that we actually, we talked about on the last episode that we had Brendan on. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And in terms of these systems that try and solve small problems in a large way, welfare fraud is not a thing that that is a major problem. Computer systems have solved most of the problems. But what uh, what has happened is because there's this conflation between criminality and being poor, you have states doing things like California brought in a fingerprinting system and it's found a few cases of 
maybe a few cases a month of possible fraud and it costs 34 million dollars plus 11 million dollars a year wow. and saved them how much money that's a good question maybe none uh, <laughs> uh, so certainly not those millions so i can give you more specific numbers with what texas did so in 1996 texas instituted the same sort of thing they it cost them 1.7 million dollars in the first seven months between 1996 and 2000 it cost them 15.9 million dollars and for that $15.9 million, there were nine charges by the DA and 12 determinations of no fraud. Wow. So I know what you're thinking. When this was re- when this was reviewed, they decided to get rid of it, right? Well, of course not. Uh, so in 2002... No, it's working. They found some fraud. Uh, in 2002, senior citizens and some disabled people gained exemptions, but it's still the system still goes on to this day, or at least as of... 2013? Uh, so if the, so, just to be absolutely clear, if this is about saving the government or the taxpayer money, this is costing the taxpayers more money. Huge yes, uh, there is, I there is, as far as I can tell, no specific welfare fraud thing that has been put in place that didn't cost significantly more than any savings could be put in place. Just the fact that we spend so much time looking into fraud and that that puts a lot of costs onto the court system as well because district attorneys need to get involved, judges get involved. When you consider those sorts of costs, it is just astoundingly wasteful. Well, just... uh, just Think of the cost. So the people who start doing some of the paperwork, some of the fraud investigators, their salaries alone are the equivalent of how many people's income on who are on welfare or social assistance programs. So for every person, you're already paying that the equivalent of that many more people who could have been on social assistance. Never mind the DA and the court systems and all these other technical networks and, and systems that need to be put in place. And just even ignoring the costs to people based on that, and there are other costs involved that get ignored because they only affect the people on the welfare system, which is that the amount of information that is tracked about welfare recipients is vast, and the amount of privacy that they have to give up. They have to give up information about sexual partners, about workplace, about where they're living. Just the amount of information that's being tracked by them is astounding, and one of the things that has repeatedly happened is because there's now this connection between the welfare system and the justice system, the justice system has repeatedly fought and succeeded in being able to use that information to track down people who might have committed a crime. Right. Hmm. Yeah. If there's a database, somebody will try and search it. Yeah. Just across the board, things are worse and worse. And so the book that I mentioned that I was taking this from Criminalizing Welfare. The actual focus of the book is on interviews with mostly women who are in California under the CalWORKs system, and it is it was very, very illuminating to hear what people had, who were on welfare had to say, because first of all, a lot of rules have been put in place so that people on welfare will be convinced to go out and get a job. For instance, I mentioned CalWORKs, which is a system in which, in order to be receiving welfare, you have to get a job, otherwise you you are penalized and mm-hmm. you lose some of your income. And, and because of how that's been treated, what's often happened is people who are even almost done schooling programs end up having to drop out of schooling to get a below minimum wage job in order to meet the requirements. In... What kind of below minimum wage job? Like a serving job? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and in general... Right. As... Because of the states. I, I may be slightly confused on it, but it seems that it is possible to pay people less if it is through this CalWORKs program. Oh, Jesus. That might, that might have been a misunderstanding on, on my part, but certainly one of the things that happens is because you... 
if you are on welfare, you're especially attached to these jobs. Mm-hmm. One, the jobs are, are terrible. There's no chance of advancement, but you're all you're also dependent on those jobs. So you may you may get paid less. You may be asked to work extra hours. You'll be exploited you because they know yeah. they know that if you lose the job, then you're yeah. off the program. Yeah. If this system was actually about getting people out of poverty, then it would be focused on programs that would increase people's skills. One of the things that the author found was that people who already had other skills and other people that they could depend on did better, but people without those systems had no way of getting out of mm-hmm. poverty or getting off of welfare. And uh, by that, I mean, there is a way they were going to get off of welfare because another thing added with the CalWork system is that there was a five-year length of time, which was the maximum amount of time you could receive welfare for. At the time of the book, it was about five months before this program, uh, before the first people who would time out of welfare were going to uh, reach that lifetime limit. Reach that lifetime yeah. limit. So I can't speak about the Oh, that, that's a lifetime limit? That's a lifetime yes. limit. Not not like consecutive No and uh so so yeah, it's lifetime. There's no one is really sure. Uh, so actually, this has started to happen now, and I just haven't done the follow-up reading on it, but it's people are going to need money in order and other support in order to survive, and it is silly to assume that those five years is all anyone is ever going to need. Or that they fixed anything based yeah. on, on... Yeah, and one of, right. the th- one of the things that happened is a lot of the people were unaware that they actually needed to have a job or else they were being dinged, or al- alternately, sometimes people were making active choices that they would rather get less in welfare because doing jobs on the side that they weren't reporting or things like that sure. w- would be better for them. Also, a lot of people were unaware that there was this lifetime limit. It was interesting because in general, the author found that the people she was speaking with were willing to were willing and open about the kinds of fraud they were committing because there it is essentially impossible to follow all of the rules for the welfare system you do not receive enough money that you can yeah. actually live under it yeah but but that's not the kind of welfare fraud that you hear about when people talk about how we need to eliminate welfare fraud it's it's people who are just choosing not yeah. to work yeah i mean if, you don't hear about the people going to work for a hundred bucks a week under the table yeah, it makes a difference. Or the you know the people who are you know <laughs> trying to do like lawn care for for people in a neighborhood for you know ten bucks a yard or whatever who are just not reporting it because then they would be dinged. Well, and one one of the other things that would happen is if you started receiving if you had a job where you weren't receiving a steady amount of income, then just the shift in what your what there would be a month delay in your what. Your welfare because you would you would report how much money you were making and that would that would affect the next month's mm-hmm. welfare funds. Nothing, but <laughs> yeah. but by then your situation may have changed. So yeah. people were just scared of reporting because the giant shifts in yeah. income would be, could be enough to yeah. ruin them. Yeah, I worked in an EIA, which is income assistance here. I worked in an office as a student, just doing filing in that. But as the student, you get to be frontline person a lot of the time, mm-hmm. and just talking to people what their complaints were and it was a frequent complaint that my hours went up at work because they were in the sweet spot where they were working as much as they could without having their benefits dropped yeah and it's not dollars a month right now right it's it's a low amount it's a few hours a week and i mean at minimum minimum wage was much lower back then than it is now but still it made a difference in their lives and these are people who keep a job and would like to be working but they don't want their hours to go up because once you go over that amount your benefits drop drastically Mm -hmm. 
and now you can't afford rent and now you can't afford food and now you can't afford the things that you can when you're just living in that sweet spot middle there. Yeah, because there's there's assumption that there is going to be someone can find a job that will be enough hours that they don't need the welfare system at all. And that's not true in like unemployment is i don't know what it currently is right now 10 ish percent uh i will find the exact number <laughs> but i also want to add that saying sweet spot is kind of ironic because yeah, it's yeah. A, i was just gonna say i know a terrible I... spot where you can like sort of barely afford to survive in the situation <laughs> that they're in yeah. it is the better of the option yeah. so when you when you consider the fact that unemployment is according to jem who just gave me the number 7.2 percent as of january although it's very important to note when you're talking about unemployment rates that the number that is used is significantly lower than the actual number because it does not include people who are not looking for jobs anymore mm-hmm. and, and people who are underemployed yeah it does not include yeah. people that are underemployed and so there is uh to borrow a term from angles this reserve force of labor in which there are all these unemployed people such that if you were if you were to leave a job someone else could take your job so you're in a position where you have to put up with maybe less hours than you can actually live on because the alternative is no job at all yeah mm-hmm. And when you're in that situation where there's that reserve force of labor and unemployment is higher, then that means that the employers have a lot more power. Mm-hmm. Buyer's market. And abuses happen when there's that Yeah, because they can imbalance. just replace you with no problem. Yeah. In one of my previous jobs, actually, we had talked about some of the poor conditions that we were subject to and, you know, the fact that sometimes we wouldn't know we would be working until the day before, or the fact that despite the new laws in Canada prohibiting people from smoking in our workplace inside while we worked, they were just doing it anyway. So we had talked about some sort of collective bargaining arrangement, and we were told by the owner that if there was a whisper of that talk again, he would fire the entire staff and hire a fresh staff. That's illegal. It is illegal. (laughs) But it's something that people have to put up with. And so it's time for me to mention another book again. (laughs) The book Hand to Mouth by Linda Torado is a very good book that I would recommend. It is her personal account of living in poverty in the U.S. And I think it does a very good job of explaining these sort of like, quote unquote, sweet spots in terms of employment where where you're having to make these sorts of tough choices. And the the thing about people who are in these positions is she was often working two or three jobs at a time because... No job was going to give her enough hours that she she would start getting benefits of full time. So yep. there there would be lots of juggling between jobs. She would find herself in positions where there might be a chance of getting a better job, but she couldn't not go to work in order to go to the interview to see if she get she could get a new job. So there are just all of these things in place that stop people from escape, escaping welfare and pretty much all of the things that exist that we have. in order to get to convince people to get out of welfare actually are just things that make it harder to actually escape welfare at all but because we have this idea that people who are on welfare are lazy we think we should have them work but if people on welfare are going to be working they should be getting real jobs not being paid less otherwise that's just like indentured servitude and that the same goes with a lot of welfare programs do things like if you are on welfare you have to do public community service community service thank you and again that is just criminalizing someone for being poor. You are asking them to work for less than minimum wage because they're already poor, and that just compounds the issues. Yeah, that's actually that, that's a good point and one that I hadn't considered. They and I'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about basic income programs. But it is true that as as part of the means test, they will demand that you are 
willing to work. And one of the ways that they test for willingness to work is engagement in community service. But as, as you're saying, Brendan, what that ends up doing is that welfare is less than minimum wage in terms of the amount of money that you make. And when you're demanding community service from people, that is the government forcing somebody to work for less than minimum wage. And you also have problems where if you have kids you're dealing with as well to take the time to do those sorts of things, just all of these issues compound if you if you are disabled in some way. In general, the idea, given that we don't have 100% employment excluding people who are on welfare, we can't, we just can't live with the idea that everyone should be working because there just aren't jobs to even do that. Mm-hmm. Brendan, your segment's been wonderful. I just wanted to add a little bit, again, from my little bit of experience just working in the system, a more Canadian kind of system, because our show is about homelessness, one thing that's important to mention, too, is that the, as Jem had said, the amount that people are receiving in, in welfare or income assistance is less than minimum wage. And we all know how well people can live on minimum wage and afford things like rent. And the rent subsidies in that are part of that income assistance are ridiculously low and haven't been updated for 20 years mm-hmm. while inflation and market prices and availability have only uh, availability has decreased significantly inflation and prices have gone up so it's not only creating a system where it's less money than someone who's even able to find a full-time minimum wage job but there isn't actually housing that is affordable for people it is always a choice between Do I pay for housing or can I eat? Can I buy my children's prescription or something like that? Directly related to that, there was a study that just came out that suggested in the U.S. uh, people who are in the, I believe it is the lower third of of the income group, no longer make, the median income of people in that range is now lower than the cost of housing, food, and transportation combined. So that means it would be literally impossible to pay for all three of those on their salary so you have to you have to make those choices it's it's not that these people are being bad with their money it's that they do not have enough money to make these choices it is yeah it is not like the math doesn't lie <laughs> the numbers the costs don't lie with these things so yeah i just wanted to point that out so when we're looking at people who are in the even lower income bracket who can't or aren't working for whatever reason, it's impossible. Because if people who are working full-time can't afford it, how are people who are making less than minimum wage going to afford Mm -hmm. housing? So it it encourages people to, or it makes it much harder to maintain housing. The other thing I wanted to mention too is the, the welfare system, just the way that it is set up, if you are a client going there, the offices are open Monday to Friday, 8.30 to 4.30 or 9 to 5, depending on where you're at. It's very business hours. They're closed over lunch hour a lot of the time, or your worker isn't around. There aren't enough workers to go around for people, so you have to make an appointment. You have to call them and have a phone number where they can reach you. Well, that's great if you have those (laughs) things. Bus tickets are not part of things. Only people who have medical appointments or education, specific education needs get some kind of transportation. So you have to walk all over the place to get places or you have to try to find money some other way to afford a bus ticket. And there, it's getting better, at least in, in our area, but in a lot of previously, the offices that were representing different city or rural areas weren't even located in that part of the city. So the office representing 
the northwest corner of the city was in downtown Winnipeg, for example. So uh, I know they're working to fix that, which is good, but that's a long way to go if you don't have a bus ticket mm-hmm. or three, which it would take you to make that trek yeah, on, yeah. on the buses. So our city is not that busable. Our, our city is not that busable, and it's very spread out for the number of people. So anyway, it's... And you have All to drag these, your kids with you. And you have to drag your kids with you and like just the appointment times and even the intake system was very, very structured. It, you had to come to this meeting at, it had happened once a week at this time, even to just get qualified. Oh, and the, the other thing I wanted to mention too is that one of the requirements is that you've exhausted all of your other options before you can apply. So if you have any savings of any kind, if you have bonds, if you have stocks that you can cash in, if you have any money, you must exhaust all of those options. If so, you have uh, like any assets that any, are worth, yeah. you know, like anyway. like family heirlooms. I don't know that you, you know, have like... to sell heirlooms and stuff. I'm not, I'm not clear on that. But if if you have a savings bond, you must cash in that savings bond. If you have an RESP or an RRSP, you have to cash those things Your car in. can't be worth more than a certain amount. Yeah. So it's... basically, we're getting rid of all the things that would help people get out of poverty. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you have someone who's hit hard times... Maybe it's their fault. Maybe it's not. Doesn't matter. Doesn't They've matter. hit hard times. They need assistance to put food on the table, have lights on, have a place to live. And they now have to exhaust everything. So down the road, if they're ready to or, or can move on from the system, they have nothing to start with. I think mentioning the lack of savings is a big deal. Uh, I don't have exact numbers on me, but one of the things that you have in the U.S. is that... Even when white people and black people are making about the same amount of money, black people don't have the level of savings of white people because they don't, they, they've they just been oppressed in some way or another that it is not easy for them to maintain it. They haven't inherited the same amount of wealth in a lot of cases. Yeah. And also related to that, you mentioned just like there aren't that many people who are working at these offices. And one of the things that happened in the U.S. with this shift towards fighting welfare fraud is a lot of people who are doing the social work were fired so that there could be more people who were looking into welfare fraud. Oh, that's so gross. Yeah, there's a certain irony in people thinking that people who are on welfare who have to do an immense amount of work just to survive are the lazy ones, when it's something like 75% wealth from the billionaire class is just through rent-seeking, it is just through them having things that they make money, and yet poor people who are working two or three jobs are the lazy ones? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, To ground this back uh, to homelessness specifically, as of 2009, there were 1 million homeless children in the U.S. and there were the same percentage of homeless people as there were in 1933 during the Great Depression. That increased since then, but the numbers I I was grabbing were as of 2011, so I don't know how those numbers are shifted back. I should also specifically mention that is in terms of uh, percent of the U.S. population that was homeless, not raw numbers. So since we've talked about all these systems we've put in place in order to police people who are already in trouble, there's the question, what would happen if we just gave people money? And I know Jem's going to talk about Mincom. I'm going to talk about something slightly different. In Brazil, under the Lula government in the early 2000s, they tried something, and I'm going to butcher my Portuguese here because I do not speak Portuguese at all, but a program called Bossa Familia, and it was for families below the poverty line in Brazil, and if their kids attended school and their ch- and their kids got vaccinated, then they would receive 
a monthly stipend per child that was money that was given to the mother and the family. And much like how we what we hear about welfare in the US and in Canada, the critics suggested that the money would just be spent on alcohol or drugs, or that the money would be spent frivolously because the poor people are uneducated and unable to make good decisions, uh-huh. and that it would discourage employment. Also that it would it would be to buy it was just uh Lula trying to buy poor people's votes. <laughs> which Yeah. Which is just incredibly insulting when when we look at in the U.S. how much how much is done to stop people poor people from voting either by arresting them so that they can't vote or just making it hard for them to get IDs, making voting places not no uh, and making uh, making it so that voting places would take too long or would just be nowhere near where poor people would actually vote. I, I just want to add: in Brazil, you are required by law to vote. You can be imprisoned if you do not vote. Well, that's good to know. I didn't. So it actually makes sense that he would be buying votes. Like that's. I'm not saying he's doing that, but that's. Uh, it makes more sense in their context than it does in ours because you must vote okay. in Brazil. Thanks for that info. Uh, so still ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's just slightly more yeah. plausible. How dare this person try to help these poor people live? Obviously, they will like him, which is politically unfortunate for us. <laughs> so you might be wondering what the results of just giving poor people money directly. What uh, were the results, Brendan? Well, poverty fell by more than 25% in the wow. first term of the Lula government. I believe Brazilian terms are six years. They might be four years. So I thought they were five. I don't know. Uh, in, in about half a decade, poverty <laughs> fell by more than 25%. As it turns out, people didn't stop working or looking for jobs. Uh, inequality decreased, I think, by like 20%. Uh, child malnutrition decreased. And there was a significant reduction in child labor. Four years. Four years. And... <laughs> and vaccination rates went up, I bet. I imagine they did. It was awesome. Yeah, uh, school attendance uh, went up and children, because children were forced to go to school for this and because yeah. because there was more incentive to not have a child out working. And this wasn't just the Lula government saying this. Uh, independent groups also felt this way. The IMF felt this way. And if you, if you paid attention at all to, let's say, news in Greece with the Troika, you would know that... <laughs> The IMF is not a big fan of any policy that isn't austerity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there are some. There is the conflating factor that during this time Brazil's GDP was going up. It was a boom time in Brazil, and so you can't just say this was only this program. But you could mm-hmm. also make an argument that this program was directly leading to Brazil doing better. I am not an economic analyst. The, the evidence isn't perfect, but the evidence is hardly an indictment of the program. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I should also specifically mention that right now the Lula, uh, Lula is no longer the president. Uh, they, they have term limits, but his party is still in power and they are facing a very large-scale corruption scandal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other party is also implicated yes, in Yes, uh, It's <laughs> important to, to note. Yeah, so I thought I would mention this just yeah. because someone might be like, oh, but isn't that a very corrupt government? But, but <laughs> corruption is outside of the purview of this program. The corruption was specifically with giving large amounts of money to contractors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was uh, contractor cronyism with regard to their uh, state-owned oil company, right? Mm -hmm. So, once again, as it turns out, just giving money to the rich seems to be the problem, not just giving money (laughs) to the poor. And a lot of the books that I mentioned specifically talk about the problems you run into with not just giving poor people money, because if if you're getting food stamps, you might still not be able to buy other things you need for your house, like soap. And as it turns out, the people who have the best idea 
for what what they need to do with their limited amounts of money are the people who are actually experiencing those things. I just wanted to say that I think that that program is like an amazing little encapsulation of everything awesome. Like you have to send your kids to school and get them vaccinated and then we'll give you money. Like it's just so perfect. Yeah, I thought- <laughs> And I it thought... also addresses the one of the primary drivers of poverty, uh, or sorry, one of the many drivers of poverty, which is children not completing school because mm-hmm. they need to pay, they need to get a job to help their family survive, yeah. and so they can't achieve higher levels of education. And Brendan specifically mentioned that the money goes to the matriarch of the family. Yeah. yeah. Which I like, too. I thought this specific policy would play well among this crowd. <laughs> uh, but it's also just it's just a good counterexample because almost everything the U.S. is doing with welfare while they complain it about people just being stuck on welfare forever is actively increasing the odds that there is going to be a cycle of poverty mm-hmm. versus yep. the system that they used in Brazil was specifically designed to target the issues that keep people in poverty intergenerationally. Yeah, that's awesome. So we recorded earlier this week a really great interview with Greta Christina and Alex Gabriel. So we're going to play that interview for you now. Hope you enjoy. So today on Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, we're getting the awesome chance to speak with a couple people from the new blog network, The Orbit, and today we're speaking with Greta Christina and Alex Gabriel. Good to be here. So, uh, The Orbit is a new blog network that has been set up by seemingly all of my favorite people. Um, (laughs) One of the things that we wanted to ask you about was, uh, what is The Orbit's mission, and how is it different from some of the other big blog networks out there? Alex, do you want to take this? Do you want me to take it? You know what? You take it, and I'll disagree with you when necessary. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) Uh, So uh, The Orbit is a diverse collective of atheist and non-religious bloggers committed to social justice within and outside the secular community. Uh, We provide a platform for writing, discussion, activism, collaboration, and community. Uh, and to put that in somewhat less mission statementy terms, um, uh, you know what we are is we are a blogging site, uh, a media site uh, that is made up of atheist and other non-religious bloggers in a wide variety of demographics. We have a wide our bloggers come in a wide variety of genders, gender identities, races, ages, nationalities, uh, disabilities or lack thereof, uh, mental health issues economic classes uh you know we're a very diverse uh spectrum of people but we're all non-believers we're all committed to social justice and we're committed to making organized atheism more diverse more welcoming of a wider variety of people uh and and more attentive to social justice issues generally um and in particular to the ways that social justice and atheism intersect that is a heck of a mission statement for sure uh, any disagreements, Alex? Yeah, that's all wrong. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's... Um, our mission statement was something which everybody on the site had a word in, so that represents me as much as Greta, as much as anybody else. Um, for me, one of the real um, strong points of this is not just carving out a more socially conscious corner of atheism, but also, you know, one of the things I in particular wanted this to be early on was a site that would 
reach into progressive media generally and make the social justice community an easier place to be an atheist, actually, and an easier place to be um, someone who was once a believer and is is dealing with all of those issues. For sure. And I I really hope that it uh, accomplishes that goal. That's really interesting to me, trying to make social justice spaces a more comfortable place for atheists to exist, not just trying to make atheism uh, a more comfortable place for people of a diverse range of identities to exist. It definitely goes both ways, and I do think that that's important. And it's it's easy for those of us who have been very enmeshed in organized atheism, you know, to see all the ways that organized atheism is doing this successfully or not doing this successfully, you know, ways in which we you know, are making ourselves more supportive of a wider variety of people, ways in which we're spectacularly failing to do that. But Alex is definitely right that, you know, atheism and skepticism and sort of, you know, the our culture, our values, we have a lot to contribute to the social justice movements. And, uh, and I think also that social justice movements can be unwelcoming to us, just as we can sometimes, you know, atheism can sometimes be unwelcoming to, you know, to social justice advocates. And so it does definitely work both ways. Now, both of you mentioned community, and I, I have spent a little bit of time clicking around the orbit because, as I think Ashlet alluded to earlier, a lot of my favorite bloggers are now there. <laughs> and I'm delighted to report that the internet maxim of don't read the comments does not seem to apply. So I'm curious how you've gone about trying to craft an engaged, friendly, thoughtful community? Like, how does that work on the internet? I think that that varies a lot from, from blogger to blogger. Uh, but I would say if there's one rule of crafting an actual functioning online community, it's moderate, moderate, moderate. And that means being willing to block people. It means being willing to block people who aren't engaging in good faith. And different people do handle this very differently. I know that if I have, on in my space, if I have people who are just who are being terrible, who aren't engaging in good faith, who are derailing, uh, who are continuing to ask 101 level questions and repeat those same questions even after they've been answered, uh, who don't seem to be really asking in good faith and are just sort of trying to trip you up. I'm very quick on the block button. You know, I'm just like, I don't have time. I don't have energy. And my readers don't have time and energy. And we want to have the the 201 level conversation and the 301 level conversation. Other people are more willing to engage. And some of that is as education and some of that is just as, you know, self-care. And, you know, they like to engage. What I think you can't do is just ignore it. And that's, you know, one of the, the failings that a lot of online sites have is they have this misguided notion of what free speech means. They have this notion that what free speech means is... In your space, you have to let anybody say whatever they want. Um, and of course, that's not, you know, that's that's terrible definition of free speech means in their space. They can say whatever they want. Uh, and as a result, a lot of online community have become very hostile. You know, it, it has effectively driven people out and, and silenced people. And so I think that if you're going to have to craft an, an online community, you need to be willing to moderate and you need to be willing to have moderation policies and comment policies that are reasonably clear, reasonably consistent, and that are enforced fairly. Uh, Alex, would you? what would you add to that? Um, you know, hard one for me to answer because I'm really not in any way consistent um, with the way that I handle my comment section. And maybe that's one of the reasons, you know, maybe that's one of the forms of psychological intimidation that I've used against um, the people who don't like me on the internet is <laughs> to be as unpredictable as possible. Um, 
<laughs> so no, I, you know, actually, uh, as far as you know, moderation and commenting and things like that, um, there may come a point when I do what a lot of people on um, not just progressive media but online media in general are doing, and just decide that. I don't want my blog to have a comment section. I think I would be the, p- the first person on our site to do that and the only one. Um, and I don't say it because I don't appreciate the comments that I get. But my experience is that, um, you know, it's the same as a lot of online publishers. Um, if you look at you know, various mainstream news sites, comment sections are, are a feature that are dying out, um, mainly because the way that the internet works now is that discussions around media and link sharing happens on facebook twitter on sites that are sort of designed for content curation and to enable personal preferences as far as discussions go um so i think it'll be interesting to see what happens with comment sections in the next two to three years both in atheism feminism social justice circles and generally on the internet um of course if i'm the only person who gets rid of mine um i will happily accept that i was the outlier and i may not even do that but let's see what happens And I think, honestly, what I get from that is different people have different ways of doing it, but you have to do something. If you're going to have comments, you know, you can't just let it go. Um, And I think that, as Alex is right, that a lot of media sites have decided not to do comments because if you get, you know, 10 comments a day, 20 comments a day, moderation is not that difficult. If you're getting hundreds, you basically have to have at least one person whose full-time job it is to do that. And it's an expense, what I think, though, is what, you know, when Alex was talking about, you know, how conversations about media have, to some extent, uh, moved to Facebook, to Twitter, to other social media, I think that, to some extent, that's true. I, I often get more discussion on my Facebook page about my blog posts than I do on the blog itself. But then I have to moderate the Facebook page, you know, I, I and, and I think that no matter where the conversation is happening, um, can't just let it happen and ignore it because otherwise it will become 4chan, basically. An untended garden becomes a wilderness. Yeah. (laughs) There's something of a rule of thumb among people who review films and work in those aspects of journalism, which um, not everybody adheres to. I don't know that I always do, but um, the rule is that, you know, if you're writing about somebody's work, you only write something if it's something you would say to their face. And I think for me, one of the functions of those discussions happening in places like Facebook and Twitter is, you know, you're in my living room there. You know, you're not in a comment section that's sort of designed to be reasonably formal. Um, so, yeah, there's something I, I almost prefer about having those discussions at closer quarters because it's sort of, yeah, I feel it's it's almost um, more expected that the block button is there if I decide someone isn't being isn't engaging in a way that I want them to. For sure. So something that uh, I've noticed about the Orbit in particular is that you guys have gone to great lengths to cultivate a, a very diverse group of contributors. And uh, something that I've heard a lot and that you guys have heard as well is how do we get more diversity? There's always the conversation of, you know, this group is too white and too old and too male usually. And so many people seem to jump to the conclusion of like, well, you know, we just we're just going to be welcoming to everybody and eventually they'll come. And as I'm sure you guys know, that doesn't always work out either. So how did you guys um, cultivate and reach out to so many different people? Well, for one thing, it helps that so many of us have been around in the blogging scene that we're in for so many years. I mean, Greta, is is this what your 11th year of blogging? Something like that. So in many cases, you know, we know this community quite well. And we know the people who are who have in some cases been the atheists, disability activists or whatever else. And it helps to have had, you know, all the exposures to those discussions over a number of years. I think 
the point that I would like to make is that, um, you know, we have all these discussions about how do we make atheism more diverse? How do we make atheism less dominated by white men? Well, we talk about the people and we talk to and publish the people who are, you know, the ones we're looking for. You know, it's it's an interesting thing, but, you know, we were talking about making progressive culture more inclusive of atheists. I'm saying this as somebody who um, grew up in a religious environment, went through various kinds of abuse. Um, there are always going to be people who are atheists and who have to write about it. That is, you know, to some extent impacted by people's demographics and, and how able people are to speak publicly. But to some extent, it's not. You know, there are always going to be people who, for whatever reason to do with their life, need to write about not being believers and what that means to them. You find those people and you listen to them because there's always someone out there it's more often a question of whether anybody is actually giving them the platform. And hopefully we've done that. Yeah, so, so my answer to that question is very similar to Alex, although from a somewhat different angle, uh, which is I think that the answer to the question of how do I make our spaces more diverse, how do we make our communities, our organizations, our movement in general, more diverse and more genuinely welcoming and supportive of more people, it depends a little bit on what you're talking about. You know, how you do that in an online space is going to be different from how you do that in a local community, you know, how you do that in a national organization is going to be different. Um, you know, there's, you know, it's, so it's not like there's a one size fits all answer. Uh, but I think that one of the answers and one of the things that I do think that we did successfully is make it a priority, make it a priority from day one. You know, we were from day one, not content to have our, to have our site be, anything other than just really gloriously diverse. It, it was it was very it was a very high priority from the very beginning. And and then and because of that, so it's make it a priority and commit to taking action. I think that there's a lot of people I've seen this a lot, especially with local in the flesh communities, where people say well, we want to be diverse. We want, we're not going to kick anybody out, you know, if they're a different race or gender or sexual orientation than, than what we currently are dominated by. And they kind of think that that's enough. It's like that simply by saying we want to be welcoming, that that's enough. And it isn't, you know, and I think one of the things that anytime you're trying to, you know, support diversity uh, you need to acknowledge all of the ways that it doesn't happen, all of the ways that it's very easy to just, if you're organizing a conference, for instance, it's so easy to just, you know, go for all of the obvious faces and all the people you already know. And I've seen this a lot with conference organizing. It's like sort of they invite all the people that they want, and then they realize we have three open spaces in our roster and everybody we currently have is white and three quarters of them are men. That's why mm -hmm. it's so important to to start from the beginning and to commit to it from the beginning and to not just say, to, to not expect that it's going to magically happen on its own. Um, but, you know, there, one of the things I think is really important about this is there's a really common and very insulting assumption that when, when you go out of your way to make your, whether it's an online site, whether it's a local community, a national organization, whatever, when you go out of your way to make it more diverse, somehow you're air quotes lowering the bar. And you're not lowering the bar. And it's so insulting. Basically, what you're saying is women and people of color and young people are just, they're just inherently not as good. You know, it's terribly insulting. And in fact, the opposite is true. When you, what do you know, when you broaden your talent pool, you get more talent. Um, what you do, what it does mean is that you have to look outside the usual suspects. 
Um, but when you do that, there's like amazingly talented people. A lot of people have commented on the orbit. It's like, wow, there are some really strong voices, some really good writers who we didn't know about before. And you, and who we, and and those are the people who are really, I think, at this point, really rising to the top at the orbit. Um, and uh, who people are really paying attention to. Um, so th- there's, I, I realize I people talk about this a lot. There's one more small thing I want to say, which is that some things that you've been <laughs> said is that diversity isn't enough and that diversity isn't the goal. And the way that I look at that is that diversity by itself is not the goal. Diversity is a means to an end. The, the goal, the end is creating a community that is genuinely welcoming and supportive of a wide variety of people. And diversity is a way to make that happen. And to some extent, I think it's a signpost that you're doing an okay job of making that happen. But it is the, it's the means, not the end. For sure. Absolutely. I really appreciate a lot of that. Um, I actually keep uh, a quote on my phone uh, from you from one of uh, your blog posts from ages ago about how uh, you were first drawn to the godless community because it was so welcoming to LGBT people. And one of the big things was that when you joined, it wasn't always just the LGBT people who had to jump into the fray. When somebody put down a gay person, for example, it would be the straight people who would jump on them. And so I think that's a big part of it is you have to have the people who are in the majority um, speak up about issues that matter to minorities. Yeah, Alex and I are going to have an interesting conversation about this, and I want to say something, and then I really want to hear what Alex says, because I think we may say very different things. <laughs> um, I've actually somewhat modified what I say about that, uh, largely because I think that the atheist community is certainly better than a lot of other communities at these issues. What I think we are is pretty good most of the time on LGB and not so great on the T. Um, I've seen That's a absolutely fair, of, yeah. of not really profoundly not great stuff happen to uh, trans people uh, in the atheist community. And I also think that it's, we're, again, better at LGB on LGB than a lot of communities, but we still have some work to do. Um, and I would like to hear what Alex says about that. I also think that it's this complicated thing where people who are on the privileged end of the axis need to be willing to speak up, but we also need to be willing to shut up um, and mm-hmm. give other people uh, the microphone. And amplify voices who are actually affected. Yes, exactly. Yeah. um, So everything Greta just said was wrong. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, uh, you know, in one respect, in in the factual dimension, I may even go further. I think, um, you know, we're we're a community where there is a lot of straight people who um, think of themselves as being really good for LGBT people. What that really means most of the time is, you know, reasonably sort of um, willing to work with... uh, Gay men who aren't threatening to them, somewhat willing to work with queer women as long as they're not overly feminist, um, touch and go on bisexuality, um, and yeah, a whole lot of atheist hostility to trans people. It's um, it's one of the things that I tend to say um, when I'm invited to do, uh, among other things, panels on um, queer identity and religion with members of religious groups, is I tend to start with a series of apologies for all the crap that's been happening in the atheist community. Because I find if I start by apologizing for my community, they have to as well. And (laughs) religious people have more to apologize for than us. Um, Or at least religious traditions do. Um, But on that note, you know, it's... um, There's a post that Greta wrote a few years ago about feeling more comfortable as a queer person in atheism than vice versa. Um, That is certainly not everybody's experience. Um, It's certainly not a lot of trans people's experience too, um, as well as just 
you know, women of all stripes. Um, but that being said, there's this sort of, I should probably go on the record here as, as a queer person that finds mainstream LGBT organizing um, toxic and awful in um, so many ways. Um, but I think there's this culture that you run into a lot in that community of um, love and hugs for everybody, love and peace or else. And when that comes to discussions about religion, it's frequently kind of an uncritical embrace of all religious identity as being, you know, beyond um, any nuanced discussion. And that can be a really hard thing to inhabit for people who, you know, can't join the table of, I found a way of reconciling a religious identity with a queer one, and I feel really comfortable and happy in a church or wherever else. Um, it can be, I'm thinking of something that uh, Hina Dadaboy said um, 18 months ago or something, who writes an excellent blog with us called Hina Stealings. Um, Mm -hmm. She said in a post a while back, it really shouldn't be this difficult to be a queer atheist. It really shouldn't. It doesn't make sense, but it is sometimes. Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to second something Alex said, which is that, you know, since I wrote that piece about how awesome the atheist community is on LGBT issues, I have seen more difficult things. But I, and again, this is not true for everybody, but it's certainly true for a number of atheists, which is that I have an easier time being queer in the atheist community than I do being atheist in the queer community. The, the queer community can be very unwelcoming uh, to non-believers, and especially to non-believers who are critical of religion or, or who were abused by religion and, and feel a need to talk about that. You know, of course, there are atheists who are critical of atheists who want to criticize religion, which Alex has a whole lot to say about. Um, but, <laughs> but that's not an uncommon experience. A lot of LGBT people I know have had that experience. A lot of LGBT atheists have had that experience and um, have said that as difficult as it sometimes is to be a queer in the atheist world, that being an atheist in the queer world is a lot harder. For sure. Um, so one of the things that you had mentioned earlier was that some of your voices have been pointed out by people coming to the blog as, um, you know, oh, you know, I didn't realize what a great blogger so-and-so was. So what are some less well-known Orbit contributors that our listeners might want to check out? So... I think that some of the strongest voices uh, in the orbit right now, and everybody's amazing, and I don't want to, you know, diss anybody. I think that it's a very strong lineup. But um, I think that um, Alyssa Gonzalez has been doing incredible blogging. Um, Anya Bula has been doing incredible blogging. Nikki Massey, uh, Tony Thompson. And these, uh, those are four of the people who have been, and Benny Vines, I'll put those five. Uh, those five are people who have been very strong right out of the gate and who a lot of people have been saying, I didn't know about them. Um, and so one of the things that I'm proudest of with the Orbit is that we have been able to create a platform that lets this really extraordinary, uh, you know, and they're people who are good thinkers and they're people who are good writers. And, and we're, have managed to create this platform. There's something interesting I want to say about how the site is designed and Alex can talk about this more because he's on the design committee. But if you go to our site, if you go to the Orbit and you click on blogs, you're going to see a list of the blogs. If you click on it again, that list is going to come in a different order. Every time you click on blogs, the list of blogs you see is listed randomly. And that was a deliberate decision so that it wasn't, we weren't privileging the people who blog the most, the people who get the most traffic, the people whose blogs begin with the letters A, B, or C, um, people who join the blog first. It was, we have this very strong egalitarian principle uh, about how we do our internal decision as well as, you know, what we do uh, publicly. And I think that that's reflected in the fact that voices who have not been heard as much are getting heard. That's wonderful. 
Right, so... So who um, did she miss, Alex? <laughs> you know what? Uh, I don't think Greta missed anybody, but there is something um, I will note. First of all, uh, the tech feature that Greta is discussing, um, credit for that goes to Jason Tebow, who uh, is our techie guy and who um, built our current site design. Um, one of the things our Kickstarter is doing, we are looking to um, evolve our site design more so that we can really have something that looks like a you know a media site now. Um, funny thing, actually, uh, if you read our About Us page or our Kickstarter or anything else, you'll find out that the way our site works behind the scenes is that everything is done by um, working groups of different bloggers. We do all of the work ourselves. Um, there is actually a design committee. Our site was technically designed by committee. I feel... We're almost kind of showing that you can do that without completely destroying your reputation, I hope. That's <laughs> yeah, um, usually a bad word. <laughs> I, I actually, looking at the site, it looks wonderful. It's very clean, which is something that I really appreciate because a lot of blog networks are very busy in their uh, their design. Their names. No, no. <laughs> uh, so by the time this podcast goes live, there will be just a couple of days left in the Kickstarter. Did you guys want to give it one final plug and tell us what we can earn with our money dollars? So yes, we are doing a Kickstarter and I actually think that that's an important part of us being a community site and us being, you know, we have this, you know, collective democracy principle guiding how we work. And I think that being crowdfunded is actually an important part of that. Uh, because it means that who we are answerable to, who we are responsible to, is the community that supports us. And we are going to be taking ads, but uh, we can afford to be more selective about what ads we take because we're crowdfunded. I, I, and I think that it gives our readers and the participants in the projects that we're going to be doing more of a sense of investment uh, and more of a sense that they are the ones that we need to listen to and they are the ones that we need to be awesome for her uh so yes so we are doing a kickstarter if you go to our site the orbit there's a big link that says here's how to support us um and also if you just go to kickstarter and search on the orbit and yeah there's all kinds of rewards if you're a backer everything from for small donations there's stickers there's t-shirts there's jewelry there's signed copies of books there's hangouts and uh, for the, the very, very high level, if anybody pledges $10,000, uh, we'll put on a conference in their city. Um, and we're actually kind of not kidding about that. Um, if there's any organizations, local groups that are saying they want to have an atheist conference, if you can come up with the money, we will do the work. Ten grand is not too bad for a whole conference. Well, of course, for Canadians, that's about 100000 <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if the Winnipeg skeptics have that in our coffers, but... Uh... Uh, so, to finish off our actual topic for this month's podcast is, uh, well, the grand topic of we're going to solve homelessness. And so I thought we could uh, ask you guys what you think from a couple of different perspectives. I am entirely going to pass this one off to Alex. Um, I might have a few things to say at the end, but... For reasons that will become obvious, I'm going to pass this one off to Alex. <laughs> well, um, I speak from the dubious advantage here of actually being a homeless person. I've been um, sofa surfing and living in abandoned buildings and similar fun things for about the last six months um, in between blogging and editing Greta's forthcoming book. So, yeah, uh, there was actually um, it's, a, it's a strange sort of paradox, but I wasn't sure until earlier today whether I was going to be able to do this podcast because I didn't know whether I was going to have a place for tonight where I could do it from. For sure. Something there about, yeah, the way that um, issues sort of eat themselves. Um, but, you know, it's really sort of disturbing to live in... Uh, I'm in the UK right now. I'm in London. We are, I think, the sixth richest country in the world. Um, and yet 
over the last six years, um, the amount of homelessness, the amount of rough sleeping has multiplied under the government that we have now. Um, I should specify, we're a country where there was no Obama election. You know, there was after the financial crash a few years ago, we didn't elect a government that decided to protect the, you know, the social safety net, albeit somewhat unreliably. We didn't elect a government that thought, yeah, let's invest our way out of this. Um, so we've been living with the effects of, you know, all the austerity that people are talking about in Europe has been um, making homelessness worse and worse here um, over the last few years. And it's um, it's really disconcerting to me um, that it's so hard to say the really simple thing, which is that, you know, if you have people um, who don't have a place to live and the market isn't providing a place for them to live, well, the solution isn't actually difficult. You know, you build homes, you control rents, you control the minimum wages that people are earning, you control the availability of work. Um, and it's, you know, it's really depressingly difficult, I say that as a person with depression, to get any traction on this, at least in the country where I live. Because this is not, this is not an intellectually difficult or complicated issue. And yet it has become very politically difficult. Yeah, one of the things that we're talking about tonight is uh, the fact that the easiest way to make sure that more people have homes is to simply give them homes. And for some reason, that seems like the most difficult solution to actually implement. One of the things that I find frightening is that right now I'm imagining uh, somebody listening to this interview right now and screaming at their podcast listening device that Alex is biased in some way because he's actually affected by this. So of course he just wants somebody to build homes. But I want, if you are that hypothetical listener, I want you to think about why you are not considering yourself to be biased because you're you're living in your own home right now. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, what what you just said. I mean, I think that the idea that people who are living an experience are the ones who are biased and therefore have nothing to say about it. I mean, and that's cut, that cuts across lines. Yeah. You know, that, I hear that all the time. It's appalling. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like people say that women can't speak about gender because we're too emotional about it from, you know, centuries. <laughs> so it's, and you're, and you're right. It's, it's, and I will speak as somebody who has always been reasonably comfortably housed. I've been borderline a couple of times, but never really afraid uh, that I was going to be on the streets and that can put blinkers on you. And, you know, simply knowing people who are homeless or marginally housed and, you know, talking with them and talking with more than one is, a, you, you said, what is a solution? And I don't know that there is one solution, although, yes, giving people homes is a really good place to start. But there's, you know, there's all kinds of endemic problems and they're varied from, you know, it's different, going to be different in the UK and in Canada and the US, going to be different in different cities it's different in San Francisco because the cost of living is so high. It's different in different places. But yes, giving people a place to live is a really good start. But a really good start is just listening to the damn people who are experiencing the problem. You know, there that are... That doesn't make any sense at all. You know, <laughs> and start there. I think human beings have a tendency to, to blame the victim. You know, we have the whole... There's the whole skeptics should know about the just world fallacy where our brains are working. Yeah that the world is just and that therefore if people are having a hard time, it must be because they deserved it. And the worse that they're experiencing, the more they, they are bad and must have deserved it because um, as skeptics, we need to understand that along with every other cognitive bias that we have, uh, we, and, and we really need to, to work to combat it. 
And, and yes, this idea that, well, if you're homeless, it's because you totally deserve it. In the United States, that gets combined with the Puritan work ethic and this sort of this fixation on work that the United States has. That's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. That's just on the idea that work is the only measure of your work. And I think that we need to undercut that as well. And there's, I mean, there's all kinds of other things. I mean, all kinds of social safety nets. Um, You know, I think a basic guaranteed income would be a good start. There's a lot of places that are starting to experiment with that and it's, it's working out well. You know, homelessness isn't just one problem. You know, it's created by poverty. It's created by lousy education. It's created by, you know, massive uh, economic uh, injustice. In the United States, it's perpetuated by voter disenfranchisement. Um, you know, things like voter ID laws are essentially a way of making sure that homeless people don't vote, um, <laughs> among other people. But yeah, I would say give people houses and listen to people who are homeless is a really good place to start. Mm-hmm. All of those factors are certainly true in the UK as well. I mean, you mentioned the the, uh, the Puritan work ethic, Greta. Um, remember where the Puritans came from. <laughs> you know, all of that crap is... Um, we wish that you could have taken the whole thing with you, but no, that legacy is still here and alive as well. And in fact, you know, you were talking about double binds and the way that we blame people for being homeless. Um, one of the common things that you see from people who are not very good at thinking about these issues is the statement, or rather the question, you know, if you're homeless, why do you have a shiny thing? You know... Why do you still own possessions if you're homeless? Why do you have a phone? Why do you have an iPad, a laptop, whatever? Well, you know, first of all, it's really interesting to look at the double bind here. You know, you don't deserve help as a homeless person until you've given away literally all your possessions and everything you own. And when you've done that, you don't deserve help as a homeless person because you deserve it and you look homeless and you don't have anywhere to go. Um, But it's really interesting to note, and it's alarming and horrible to note too that um in england rough sleeping and begging is actually against the law you can walk around london at night and see people getting arrested for being you know on the streets at night you can see people arrested for asking for money and all of that kind of thing personally i have an ipad and a laptop and all of that stuff partly because it allows me to you know find places to sleep on social media partly because it allows me to work um and also partly because it's a shield you know if you sit in a train station at night and the police are there looking for homeless people to get rid of if you have an ipad they just think you're a commuter so that helps as well. But, you know, we were talking about voting. Part of this is that, you know, there's there's a really sort of, um, again, just a terrifying lack of urgency when it comes to these issues. Um, I don't want to go off on too much of a rant, and I certainly don't want to get into arguments about um, the candidates in the US presidential race right now, but it is really interesting to note. You know, so much of both this election cycle and the previous one have been about, you know, a sense of delayed diversity about you know isn't it time we had a female president isn't it time we had a jewish president wasn't it time we had a black president in 2008 um and i, I absolutely don't want to diminish the importance of representation in politics and making that process accessible to everybody but it really it's very noticeable that um you know liberal media in general has this sense of you know there's this due date that happens for a particular background there's a due date for a female president or a black president and it's behind us. Those things are overdue. We never talk about things like housing or basic income as being overdue. You know, we never talk about political developments that would be directly beneficial to more than one individual as having, you know, an implicit time scale. Where are we with this right now? Why hasn't it happened yet? I think many, both people of my generation who are going through homelessness and people experiencing homelessness and poverty in other generations have this sense of, you know, when is it going to be time for this to be on the table? When are people going to have this sense of, you know, it really is time we did something about this because there's this very troubling sense that it's not 
on the table. And the way to make it an issue on the table is to talk about it more and to stop and to, to not be shut up about it. And it's definitely much harder to talk about it more when the things that make it easier to talk about it, like the computer and the iPad and the phone, are, are things that people don't feel that you deserve as a homeless person. There's definitely that horrifying double standard there. Ugh. Right. And there's, uh, I forget where this was, but someplace in the American South where I don't know if this is passed yet or if it was just something that was somebody was uh, advocating, but this was in the news recently that somebody wanted to uh, make it the law that if you were on welfare or food stamps in the United States, you couldn't have a car. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. good Lord. And, okay, so barring everything that Alex just said about how essentially if you are poor or homeless, you're not ever allowed to have anything that's pleasurable, and if you do, people are going to judge you because you should have been spending that money on other things. Um, how are you supposed to get to work? How are you supposed to find work? Uh, if you you know there's you know there's some parts of the country where you can do that in public transportation, but there's some parts where you absolutely can't. Um, and this and and that goes to what Alex was saying before about this idea of you shouldn't have a phone, you shouldn't have a laptop, you shouldn't have a tablet. Well, we're in the 21st century. Laptops and phones and tablets are how you find work. They're how you how you find housing. Uh, they're how you get support. And so it, it, again, it's just this, this terrible double bind of literally no matter what you do, it's going to be wrong. And, and I see that a lot with uh, online fundraisers. People will often get told, it's like if somebody is really broken, they're saying, I need help to pay my rent this month. I My laptop just died and I need a new one. Uh, there is this pushback. And of course, it's always very inconsistent and hypocritical. It's always... You know, our friends' fundraisers are totally legitimate and people we don't like, their fundraisers are, you know, air quote, e-begging. But the idea that asking for help from people who might want to give it to you and they're free to give it to you or not give it to you, I, I am not only am I failing to see any harm in that, I am baffled at how you would see harm in it. There's, and, and there's somebody who was just talking online, I forget who, about how... You know, online fundraisers, they're a libertarian's wet dream. You know, literally. <laughs> Everybody lets the free market decide. Yeah, exactly. That's what the free market is. And especially if what you're talking about is supporting writers or artists or podcasters or uh, musicians or people whose work you care about and want to see more of. You know, online fundraisers are literally the free market in action. You know, it's like I'm saying I want help for my thing. You give help or you don't. Um and yet even that gets shame. And that just to me points to just how toxic and just poisonously irrational this idea is that by definition, if you need help, you don't deserve help. Absolutely. Yeah, I can't <laughs> disagree on any point at all. And you see the fundraisers, there's a, a popular meme going around right now that, you know, we want healthcare so people don't have to put up fundraisers so that they don't die. Things like that. As as a Canadian, that whole idea is just baffling me that you could actually have your life threatened because you can't get medical care because you can't afford it. But everything else that people fundraise for for rent for you know the the things they need to do their job and everything else on top of it it's the the same thing that you need those things to get by and when you have when you're unemployed or underemployed or something comes up and you just ask your friends for help and and get shamed for it it's it's very strange 
So I have kept you guys a bit longer than I expected. Is there anything else that you wanted to say or add or plug before we let you go? Well, I would just say something, which is um, we've talked a lot about our site. Um, don't think anybody's mentioned, but our actual address is theorbit.net with a hyphen, the hyphen orbit.net. Having mentioned that I'm on the design committee, um, I'm very proud of having made the dots in our .net pale blue. Makes me very happy. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah, the logo is really pretty, and one of the rewards, I believe, is is stickers for one of the lowest rewards. So if you want a, a pretty Orbit sticker, head over and support them. Yeah, no, I mean, the main thing I want to say is uh, I am hugely excited and proud about the site, and I think we're going to be doing really great things. We've, it's a, it was a lot of hard work making it happen, uh, and it's probably going to continue to be hard work continuing to make it happen, but it is really rewarding um i think the hard work is paying off and our readers have said that the hard work is paying off um that that it the site looks beautiful and the content is uh really exceptional and really varied uh and i think you know the you know our uh, crowdfunder has been very successful so far and you know obviously the more support we get the more things we can do uh, actually there's here's one thing i want to say so we're doing this crowdfunder uh when we make various goals we can do different things we just passed our goal of eight thousand uh american dollars uh that lets us do an online conference if we make our next stretch goal of ten thousand dollars uh we will be able to uh publish an ebook anthology of some of our writing so contributing to us will support this project that hopefully people will be interested in and also will get you goodies I'm definitely looking forward to the online conference. So if you want to find out when that is, I'm sure following the hyphen orbit.net will be useful for that. Apologies for not mentioning that address earlier. That's an oversight. And we'll definitely link to all of this in the show notes. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for spending your time telling us about the site and your thoughts on everything else. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, coming on our show, Alex. And it's always a pleasure to have you on, Greta. Oh, you're more than welcome. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And now we're back. Everybody should go check out theorbit.net, the-orbit.net, and check out their Kickstarter. We're going to talk about simply giving people money, as uh, was talked about, and Gemma's going to cover minimum income projects. So, so far we've talked about solutions that we already have in place, and some of the ways in which they can fail. What I'd like to talk about now is a proposed solution that people have been talking about for several decades and actually a couple of centuries, depending on how you look (laughs) at it. And we'll see how that stacks up. So we're talking about basic income programs. A basic income program is a social security measure that aims to reduce or eliminate poverty by directly transferring public funds to individuals, essentially providing a salary to each citizen. For some terminology, right off the hop, there are a wide variety of basic income programs that have been proposed and in some cases implemented, usually on smaller trial scales. The term universal basic income typically refers to income provided to all citizens unconditionally such that they are able to meet their basic needs. Enlightenment thinker Thomas Paine actually proposed a similar system of capital grants, which I believe was a one-time transfer upon hitting the age of majority, in his 1795 work Agrarian Justice. Hmm. An unconditional income transfer that does not lift all recipients above the poverty line, by contrast to universal basic income, is called a partial basic income. 
while a guaranteed minimum income provides conditional income dependent on a means test or other eligibility requirements. So typically you'll need to show that you are unemployed or severely underemployed and that you are willing to work but work isn't available or you have some disability that prevents you from working. This type of means-tested benefit is actually what we have in Canada and the United States in the form of Canada's income assistance and the U.S. welfare system. So the the three types of basic income is we have the universal basic income, where everybody is paid. Essentially, the only condition is citizenship, and you are paid such that you can live. Then there's the partial basic income, which is also not means-tested, so everybody is paid, but it is not sufficient to cover all basic living expenses. And then there's guaranteed minimum income, which is of which welfare is a... Uh, specific type. I have a question. Yeah. Um, so the one where you just get a lump sum when you reach the age of majority, was that ever implemented or was that just something he was thinking about? No, no, that was uh, that was just uh, a proposal of his to make sort of the world more fair. Okay. Just <laughs> not curious. a lot of Thomas Paine stuff got implemented. <laughs> <clears throat> Which is a shame. Thomas Paine was cool. Yeah. <laughs> I want that recorded. I want people to know I think Thomas Paine is cool. <laughs> So how are these things funded? Well, basic income program under a capitalist economic system is funded by taxpayers. While in economic systems based on market socialism, it would be funded by the profits earned by publicly owned enterprises. In those cases, instead of being called a universal basic income, it would be called a social dividend. You so, know, so Manitoba Hydro would pay me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't they already? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, under a capitalist system, basic income can be incorporated into a progressive tax system as a form of negative income tax, in which people who earn a certain amount, as determined by the poverty line, for example, or some other determination, people who earn a certain amount would pay no taxes, people who earn more would pay a proportion of their income above that level, and people who earn less than the prescribed amount would receive a tax reimbursement, a tax payment equal to the difference between their earnings and the minimum income level. So if the minimum income level is $10,000 a year and you only make $7,000 a year, your negative tax would be, you would get a reimbursement of $3,000 a year from the government. Whereas people who earn more than $10,000 a year would be taxed on the portion of their income that is greater than $10,000 a year. And what about corporations? Well, corporations do not have basic human needs. <laughs> are you saying a corporation is not a person, Jeff? A uh, corporation is not a person. Corporations are people, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what world are you living in? <laughs> I was I'm delighted to welcome Mitt Romney to our show. <laughs> <laughs> Can I actually just interrupt for a moment to suggest how basic income is a thing that is very much built into the idea of capitalism? Adam Smith, who is responsible for the phrase, the invisible hand of the market, also believed that basic income was a thing that would probably need, be needed because of the problem of unemployment. Full employment is not a benefit to capitalism, it hurts capitalism, and he viewed basic income as a way to sustain capitalism. So, let's talk about universal basic income versus welfare. Why would you choose one versus the other? So, as Brendan ably covered in his segment, the welfare system works just fine, and if it ain't broken, why fix it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Brendan just turned a different shade of color. <laughs> I'm just so proud that he understood. <laughs> <laughs> Through all the subtext. <laughs> so, uh, universal basic income programs may have significantly less administrative overhead than welfare programs due to their lack of means testing. Also due to their lack of totally absurd levels of policing, <laughs> as we talked about in Brendan's segment. So not only do you not have to investigate nearly as much fraud, because for a universal basic income system, the only fraud that you can have is somebody who is not a citizen. That's really the only eligibility requirement, and arguably that maybe shouldn't be an eligibility requirement. One of the bloggers that I follow, her name is Angie Mizandri. Uh, she <laughs> talks about how it's funny how we don't have enough money to just give people money, but we have enough money to pay for all of the systems and bureaucracy and, and p- paper pushers that prevent people from getting money. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so a universal basic income has way less administrative overhead because not only do you not need to investigate all of the various forms of fraud and people not filing their paperwork correctly, but you also don't have to administer or review any sort of means testing. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to make sure that somebody is eligible in the same way. You don't have to make them pee in a cup. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than having to apply and go through the welfare rigmarole, everybody just gets a check in the mail. This is also an advantage when compared to guaranteed minimum income programs of other types that are that are not specifically welfare. Another result of the removal of means testing is that UBI results in fewer people falling through the cracks in the system for a variety of reasons. Let's talk about some criticisms of universal basic income. They are many, but a lot of them can be kind of dismissed essentially out of hand. People who are prone to complain about tax rates don't tend to favor universal basic income, (laughs) but as we discussed, the current system has gross inefficiencies in terms of its use of taxpayer funds, so arguably those, a lot of those inefficiencies would go away. <laughs> those people who associate poverty with a moral failing also don't tend to like this because we're paying, you know, people for being lazy, despite the fact that... Overwhelming evidence the, that poor people are not lazy? Yeah, and... Okay, we don't have to take anything those people say into consideration. Yes, seriously uh, at all. And those two groups of people actually share a large overlap on the Venn diagram. Uh, There's there's a little bit of uh, motivated reasoning going on, shall we say. I would like to state that I am somebody who pays a lot of taxes, and I feel like I should be paying more taxes. So uh, one of the most common criticisms of UBI is that it disincentivizes work. Mm -hmm. After all, nobody really wants to be employed, and the only reason anyone ever does anything useful is because they get paid for it. Capitalism! So to take the idea of a perverse incentive seriously, though, we need to take a close look at the perverse incentives that already exist in the current system, which we actually talked about uh, a little bit during Brendan's segment. When we look at the welfare systems in place in Canada, the United States, and Europe, we see that a poverty trap can occur when benefit payments decrease as income rises. When combined with the additional costs associated with actually working, such as transportation, childcare, which is a huge Mm -hmm. one, additional education that's required, and payroll deductions, the decrease in means-tested benefits can actually incentivize unemployment or underemployment. So under our current guaranteed minimum income system, we already have a situation where work is disincentivized. But A universal basic income system might actually incentivize valuable work. An individual could retrain for a new line of work or take a gamble on a new entrepreneurial venture without worrying that it might all end in abject ruin. Like all robust social safety nets, risk management becomes a lot easier when you have this system in place. So just talking about my 
personal experience, eight years ago, I was offered a job as a development lead at a small startup. And when I say small, I mean single room with two chairs small. <laughs> what, I said, what I said to Laura at the time was that if we're going to take a risk like this, now was the time to do it. We were young. We didn't have kids. It paid off. And now my company employs about 30 people, uh, Brendan being one of them. But if I had to take that risk again today with a young child and another on the way, I doubt that I would do that. I'm actually not sure if we've mentioned on the podcast before <laughs> that Laura and I are expecting another child. Prize! More, uh, more Creek Newmans on the way. So how would a universal basic income affect employment? Well, fortunately, we have access to some data. According to a 1994 Government of Canada study on guaranteed income, we can expect an overall reduction of employment of a about 5%, primarily among those who are already doing low-paying work and among second earners in two-income households. Although this study notes that 5% may be an underestimate of the employment decrease because participants in the study knew that the guaranteed minimum income was temporary. Mm -hmm. Is this the Dauphin study? No, okay. we're, we're getting there. <laughs> that was actually a, a review of several small trials. Okay. That was conducted in 94. But as Ashlyn alluded to, we actually have some evidence that the decrease in employment might actually be less than 5%. From 1974 to 1979, Dauphin, Manitoba, which is close to home, was host to the Mincom experiment. Mincom wasn't a true universal basic income because it was technically means tested, in that under Mincom, every family was afforded a cash benefit that was reduced by 50 cents for every dollar that they earned in income, okay? So a, a true universal basic income, everybody gets regardless of what they earn. Mm -hmm. Whereas under Mincom, your benefit was reduced if you earned money. But there was never a point where you where you didn't get more money by earning more money. Yeah, so there so, was no... So you don't have a to... poverty trap yeah. that way. So uh, a final report for Mincom was actually never issued, uh, probably as a result of the program being shuttered by a new conservative government that was coming in. But a recent analysis of the program conducted by Manitoban economist Evelyn Forget found that the only significant decrease in work occurred among teenagers and new mothers. Staying at home oh. with new children was less economically burdensome, so mothers could actually spend time with their child instead of having to go back to work right away. Because this was done before, before. the year-long maternity leave, right? Yes. When was it done? 70s. 74 to 79. Yeah, so they might have even had like three months at that point. I don't even know. Less. Was it less? I know when, when I was born, it was like six months. That was yeah. max. But uh, yeah, so anyway, this was... Yep. In Canada, now we have a year maternity leave, but back then it was much, much less than that. Teens were also under less pressure to help support their families. Yeah. And that actually led to increased test scores and lower dropout rates in Dauphin, Manitoba. So teenagers could go to school and moms could stay home with their babies. Yeah. <laughs> so Amazing! Th that was responsible for the vast majority of the work decrease that they saw. There was also an increase in adults enrolled in continuing education programs, which may speak to the job training issue that I mentioned earlier. Overall, reduction in work was about 1% for men, 3% for married women, and 5% for unmarried women. So that's a lot less than the 5% across the board that was seen in the 94 review. And in an interesting turn, rates of hospitalization also fell significantly, both for workplace-related injuries and for mental health issues. Another study contradicting the decline in work narrative is the pilot project in the Namibian village of Omatara, which ran throughout 2008 and 2009. The project found that economic activity actually increased 
prompted by the launch of several small businesses and the increase in the local economy's buying power. If it's the same project that I'm thinking of, there's a really great Planet Money episode on this particular case where everybody had a certain amount of money and the things that people chose to do with that money was was really interesting and they saw all these really cool tiny businesses start up that wouldn't wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So one of the criticisms of that as a piece of evidence is, well, these people were living in total abject poverty, so that's not generalizable to our our Western (laughs) 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 Which I read and, like, I stared open-mouthed at the screen as I was reading this. I'm like, seriously? That's that's a criticism of this program? Well, (laughs) it's helping people. Well, when you hear hear that, you know, people in the West don't have it that bad, they have refrigerators. Like, it's it's obvious that people don't make good faith arguments about (laughs) what poverty is like in the U.S. Yeah, and there's more data coming. A large trial of true universal basic income was recently approved in the Netherlands, which will take place in the large city of Utrecht and 19 other municipalities. The start date hasn't been announced yet, but this trial won't be means-tested, meaning that citizens who earn an income will not see any decrease in their basic income over the course of the trial. Later this year, actually, I think in the autumn, Switzerland is going to hold a referendum that proposes adding a basic universal income provision to the Swiss Constitution as well, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. Hmm. I've been really excited to see all of these programs gaining more traction lately. Yeah, it is nice. There is another facet to this discussion of unemployment and homelessness that we haven't actually touched on yet, and that's the idea of technological unemployment. So during the Industrial Revolution, there was a lot of fear that increased, that technology would result in job loss. Mm -hmm. And actually, historically, that has not been the case. Every loss in jobs due to industrialization has actually resulted in greater gains elsewhere. Also, why are jobs a good measurement for how we want to build a society? That's just super (laughs) fucked up. That's actually a really good point. It is tangential to the point that I'm making. But uh, in our capitalist system, you need some way to put food on the table. And jobs are the kind of, as Greta mentioned, that uh, Puritan work ethic, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're not working, then you're it, it's a moral failing, right? Yeah. So there are convincing arguments to be made that we are about to see widespread job loss as a result of increasing technological innovation. And I won't go over the arguments in any detail, but I will link in the show notes to CGP Gray's short documentary, Humans Need Not Apply, which provides a good (laughs) overview of those arguments. Yeah, the specter of this unemployment has caused some giants in the tech industry to push for universal basic income, or at least a trial in California, with Y Combinator president and polo shirt enthusiast Sam Altman writing (laughs) that we will see a, quote, smaller and smaller number of people creating more and more of the wealth, and we need a new solution for the people not creating most of the wealth. Nice. Uh, there, there's no <laughs> level of in classism or imperialism <laughs> no. I- inherent in that statement. <laughs> yeah, uh, but at least he's thinking of the little people. Well, and he's that thinking is... of them as little people. I agree. <laughs> uh, so one this... step at a time, guys. One step at a time. Well, this is actually what I what I what I'm talking about here. This push has actually faced some criticism, and I'm going to quote a little bit from an article for the Development Set, written by Ross Baird and Lenny Mendonca. They point out that this attitude sees everybody who's not. Busy innovating and disrupting in California as some sort of inevitable do-nothing underclass that must be appeased, or else they'll storm the gates and tear Silicon Valley down. So uh, now so, what's going to happen? I uh, hope so. <laughs> quote, 
One could take this to its logical and cynical conclusion, and say that the rest of the world will eventually be out of work and become a burden on the enlightened few. The universal basic income will keep these people at bay." End quote. Yeah, that's them sort of paraphrasing and expanding upon what Altman and others are saying. And the idea there is that if we're in a situation where there's a very small number of people making the vast amount of money as a result of producing the vast amount of innovation, Mm -hmm. what we have is the majority of people sort of living on the largesse and essentially on the whim of Mm -hmm. their their masters, right? Mm Elsewhere. I, I want to point out that we do have live under a situation where a large, where a small portion of people are produ- have the a large amount of the income, but that isn't through them being innovative. It is once again through them being landlords. They are rent seeking, and that is how the majority of money is made. It is. It, I think it is just falling into the arguments of the ultra wealthy to even suggest. The reason the ultra-wealthy exist is because of innovation. And I should note to listeners that I try not to interrupt other people when they're talking, but uh, whenever Brendan is talking, you should imagine me nodding along, because that's typically <laughs> what I'm doing. So elsewhere in the article, Baird and Mendonca point out, quote, The idea here is born from an underlying assumption that capitalism has winners and losers, and the victors have a responsibility to take care of the rest. Instead, we'd posit that many of the winners in Silicon Valley are part of a faux meritocracy being born into the right city or social network, end quote. So their argument isn't that these people are rich because they're true innovators and they are deserving of that wealth, but they are essentially lucky. And that is an argument that can be made at great length and in great detail, but is, again, tangential to the discussion that we're having here. So I won't bore our listeners with that argument. So Mendonca and Baird argue instead that instead of focusing on the noblesse oblige of universal basic income, Silicon Valley should focus on helping people build wealth for themselves. And while I agree with several of the criticisms leveled at Silicon Valley in this article, because let's be honest, the tech industry is kind of a garbage fire, uh... (laughs) Garbage fire. I don't see a lot of specific alternatives being offered that would properly offset the need for something like a universal basic income. And once again, not not directly a critique of uh, UBI, but one of the complaints that I see specifically about tech people like that bringing forward universal basic income is it seems like companies are trying to move away from their obligation to people, and they're just trying to leave it on the government side. Yeah, that's actually a good point. A lot of these large companies that are making massive amounts of money as a result of low tax rates and deregulation and skirting regulation and disruption, which in the case of a lot of these companies that are disrupting is them just technically skirting regulations with regard to who's an employee and whether they're a cab company and etc. etc. Skirting is the most polite way you could word. (laughs) Just just blatantly uh, not following regulation. Yeah, so what Brennan is saying is that these companies are just trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're trying to keep their taxes low and keep making all of their money and say, well, since we're not employing people, the government should take care of them. Capitalism! Yeah. Uber drivers, for example, are not only helping increase Uber's wealth, they are also going to have their universal basic income because Uber can't possibly pay them enough for them to make a living. So you're suggesting corporate welfare, essentially. (laughs) So, (laughs) politics. Okay, politics. (laughs) This is where Brendan is probably going to want to jump in because I'm going to make the statement that uh, universal 
universal basic income finds proponents on both the left and the right, and I would like Brendan to talk about some of its detractors. But universal basic income is that strange political animal that finds itself supported by proponents on both sides of mm-hmm. the economic spectrum. Yeah. And the reason for that is it's seen not only as a means of achieving a more equal dis- distribution of wealth and ending the tyranny of wage slavery, but also as a means of decreasing government bureaucracy and promoting entrepreneurship. As I as I mentioned, if you have that sort of basic level of income as a safety net, people are free to try to innovate with a new business solution and they don't have to fear that they will be destitute and lose their homes, for example, if that business enterprise fails. Mm -hmm. And that is a promoter of capitalism, essentially. All right, so from a leftist anti-capitalist perspective, (laughs) which is the, uh, which we also call why we have Brendan on the show. Sometimes I, I don't argue for it strongly enough. There are arguments that you can make against minimum income, and most of the arguments against minimum income aren't about minimum income itself, it is the consequences of them. One of the first arguments that you hear and is a serious thing that needs to be considered is will the minimum income amount that someone actually gets actually be enough to survive on? Mm -hmm. Uh, Both will it be enough to survive on if you don't have a job because not everyone can work, but will it continue to increase along with inflation? Since minimum wage most places is not a living wage and even as it increases is still not at a living wage amount, there's real concern that minimum income would actually represent something that someone could live on. And there's the related problem with it is if minimum income is in place, it might be at the expense of any other social programs that exist because a lot a lot of the things that happen in under the welfare system right now wouldn't need to be there if we were just giving people money. But there right. are still support systems that need to exist. And if minim- funding, you know, mental health initiatives, mental, for or, example, or shelters, because yeah. uh, shelters still matter as a short term solution, even if they are not a great long term solution, yep. issues with addiction, basic health care. Yeah, there are lots of programs that still need to exist, even if minimum income is in place. And there's concern that if minimum income succeeds, it will be at the expense of those. And then finally, from an anti-capitalist perspective, there's a concern that minimum income is just good enough that people won't actually try and move away from capitalism and away from bigger systemic problems of inequality because it's good enough that you can't rouse enough complaints about it. Right. And I have mixed feelings about all of those arguments. It's very dependent on the place and the time in which minimum income is being instituted. I don't think anyone is arguing that it is de facto bad, and by that i mean probably some people are but that's <laughs> but but that's not a major argument i've heard. already discounted those people yeah. their opinion doesn't count oh <laughs> uh, no you you could make an argument from like anarchist perspective that it's not the government's business Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, as, as I think we were discussing just the other day, some of these anarcho-socialist perspectives on overthrowing the system and the requirement for massive unrest such that people get mad enough to overthrow capitalism, for example, insufficiently account for the massive suffering that results, and therefore, because they have the end goal of overthrowing capitalism, and I think that that is extremely problematic in the sense that it discounts the very real suffering that that occurs as a result of the current system, and we can't ignore that. Oh yes, and so this is that is not an argument that I would put forward, but I will give an offense of that argument that while while there's an issue here of is good the enemy of great, if good isn't good enough to actually solve people's problems and if they're still suffering, yeah. then it being better for some people 
may not be as good for people yeah. overall. But uh, I guess a... I guess what I'm saying is you can't assume that the ends will justify the means. Yes. And just to get back to will people be paid enough, universal basic income, its conceptual definition, is defined such that people's basic needs are met. Clothing, housing, shelter, food, education. If they are not met, then that is a partial basic income, mm-hmm. and that is a valid concern that needs to be addressed. So, wrapping up, while the data is a little muddy... Even conservatively, we can say that a universal basic income is unlikely to have a significant negative effect on overall employment, and indeed the economic effects may be positive on the whole. But it is absolutely certain that it will be a great benefit to those who are living in poverty. With that universal basic income, people could buy housing and stuff. People could afford housing. Yeah. <laughs> could afford to live inside a place with, you know, a roof and four walls and running water and stuff. You well, could... we haven't gotten to the aside about whether or not property is theft. I think we should just discuss that <laughs> for the next 30 to... 40 hours. Or we could jump to Laura, who's going to tell us about long-term assistive housing. So long-term supportive housing is another aspect that helps a lot of people maintain their housing status. For for many people, they're able to find housing on their own and keep themselves there, and, and they're doing just dandy. But there's a a proportion of the population that needs some sort of support. Usually these are the most disenfranchised among us, including people who have physical disabilities, mental health issues, and or substance abuse issues. And as we've already been talking about, these are often the the segments of society that have the hardest time with just about everything. So when it boils down to it, long-term supportive housing can be pretty hard to find for a lot of people. So just as a, a bit of a definition here, Supportive housing can mean a lot of different things depending on where you are, even if you're in a certain place, the the type of program that is being run, or there's multiple different programs that run different types of housing. So it can be a very intensive sort of program where it is a single site with with individual units that are staffed 24 hours a day that can have intensive multidisciplinary teams that are there. So not quite institutional, but say it would be like a block or a building or sort of a halfway house type of thing where people are staffed, monitored all the time. They have resources right there. And it can go all the way down to just a program where people are living in market rental units. So that would mean any old apartment or rental house or, or rental room for rent in a rooming house. But they're hooked up with a program that would support them in some way should they need it. They just have to reach out or, or there's regularly time check-ins. So supportive housing can be different depending on what the, the point of the program is. Like I mentioned, a lot of the supportive housing out there is for people who have other issues that they're they're dealing with as well as on top of trying to find housing. One of the biggest groups that uses this are people who are have substance abuse or uh, using substances and may or may not be seeking treatment for that. Now, the type of interventions that are offered in these long-term supportive housing, first of all, the long-term part of it, again, that part of it actually varies depending on where you live too. In some places, long-term can mean a program that starts off as a one type of housing, like a more residential type of treatment, and then transitions into helping someone find permanent housing and doing a less intensive support system. In a lot of places, a lot of these programs, long-term means like 18 to 24 months. So it is long-term compared to, say, 
28-day rehab programs or mm-hmm. one-week-long detox programs or drunk tanks, which are for the <laughs> night. But in the grand scheme of someone's life, two years is really just the blink of an eye. Unless you're living on the street. <laughs> it takes forever to get through those two years. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But once once we're, if we're trying to sustain things and hopefully have a longer life than, than a lot of people who are unfortunately living on the street or, or who are homeless, two years is, is not a lot. Mm-hmm. So there's different types of programs and Ashlyn's going to talk about some of these too. But one of the most common types of program is called the, the treatment first model or the linear model or sometimes a stepwise or staircase model. And this was brought in in the early 90s in the U.S. in particular. That's when it was really espoused as the main way to help deal with the the problems of homelessness and substance abuse and mental health, people who are living with inadequately treated mental health. So what this basically means is that people are, people who are homeless or who have these needs are identified and they're brought into some kind of an intensive treatment of some kind with round-the-clock care and treating of substance abuse and or mental health issues. And then as they will progress through a series of steps that become less and less in intense. So they'll go from an institutional type setting to more of a group home to maybe living in their own little uh, suite in a, in a block to then finding housing. Either they find housing on their own once they've sort of graduated the program or the program has housing, independent housing that they move on to or something like that. So basically it's, it's right from the start of these programs. It's based on treating the issue that did or did not, but the issue that is making these uh, making people homeless or, or, or causing their, their issues in life. One thing that's important to know, though, is that while it sounds like a great idea, treat the issues and then get them housing, one of the big issues in terms of long-term housing in these types of programs is that housing is often used as a sort of reward in a way. People must consent to treatment and they must adhere to treatment in order to get the reward of long-term independent housing or even any housing at all in a lot of cases. So the goal of these programs isn't actually to house people, it's sort of a byproduct. It's it's your... Yeah, it's the uh, the candy at the end of it. The goal of the programs is really the substance abuse or the mental health issue treatment there. So one issue that comes up with some a lot of these programs with a lot of the people going through it is that there's often an abstinence from substance abuse requirement or substance can't substances can't be used on the property so within their own suite or in their room or anywhere in that area there if they're found to be doing it they're either put back a step or they are sometimes even um, they're out of the program entirely so the people the their housing situation is entirely dependent on their adherence to this program for for their treatment. And that causes a lot of problems there because as we know, substance abuse or substance use can be really difficult for a lot a lot of people, especially people who have very serious addictions. And it's it can be very, very difficult, especially if they're dealing with other stressors, like worrying about am I going to stay in this program? Yeah. That tends to be a trigger for relapsing for things. It becomes a cycle because where else are they going to go, right? They for the most part don't have the income or the ability to get independent 
housing on their own. Otherwise, they would have already. So then their options become very limited. They end up on the streets often. And then in order to manage their addition or self-medicate or health issues or whatever else it is, as Brendan was mentioning, a lot of these systems, it gets wrapped up in the justice system very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the U.S., but in Canada as well, drug offenses will get people thrown in jail pretty quickly. Even just public drunkenness will get you thrown in the drunk tank and then now you've got now you've got charges and this, that, and the other. And it can rack up really quickly and it makes it really difficult for people in these types of systems to maintain housing at this point because they have nowhere else to go. Maybe they get released, maybe they get to go back to a rehab program and then they relapse again and then it just cycling and cycling. Yeah, there are case studies where people have gone through this cycle of go to rehab, get housing, up to like 30 times. Absolutely. And some people will actively refuse these programs because they've gone through it and had a failure, or because they know people who have, and they say it's just not worth it for me at this point to do this. Sometimes it does feel very paternalistic as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, that's a really great point, because this idea with housing being a reward, it's okay, so housing's not a right, apparently. You know, not everybody deserves to be warm and sheltered from the elements. So that's not a great idea. And another idea that's actually a base idea of this program is that people who are homeless, living on the streets, dealing with with substance abuse problems, can't possibly have the capacity to live on their own yet. So they Mm -hmm. must go through a stepwise structured program to learn the skills that, of course, must include sobriety and abstinence in order to get independent housing. And that's a blanket assumption made for a large group of people that are very diverse from different backgrounds and all sorts of things. It also sort of makes the assumption that whatever substance they're using isn't the best or only way they have of coping with the other problems they're dealing with. Absolutely. And it comes back to that moral failure, right? There, There's something, it's bad to use a substance, you're a bad person because of it, you can't possibly have the life skills to live as a productive member of society. <laughs> Whereas if you, if a person is using whatever substance to try and treat their whatever is going on for them, yeah, it's probably cheaper than prescription medication or, or expensive medical therapies or something or in even, a lot of cases. And it, it completely neglects the the stressors of living on the street in itself. So long-term treatment or long-term supportive housing is elusive for a lot of people, partly because the barriers to entry, sort of like the welfare system, are pretty high, or the barriers to remaining within it and actually achieving the goal of independent housing is very high. And sets you up for failure. It it really does. It really, really sets us up for failure. And even for those who make it all the way through and are able to overcome all of those roadblocks in the way, if a program only lasts for 24 months and then now we're expected, now they say, okay, go find an apartment. Okay, well, depending on where you live, that may be easy or really difficult and it may suddenly be completely unaffordable for you for a variety of reasons. And so you may be doing great. You may have all the skills and then there's unforeseen things that can come along. Like Winnipeg's less than 1% housing availability. Absolutely. Yeah. Or think of cities where the average rent is in the $1,000 a month for a single, for a one bedroom apartment or something. And even if housing is available, by being homeless, you may not 
it may be it is harder for you to find find housing because you don't have past references. People are less likely to right. trust you. Right. Just everything compounds on itself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, for someone who's gone through, who has been able to go through a long program like this, you will have references from the, the program oh, yeah, staff. So you at least have that over someone who doesn't have a current address or something, but it's still not an easy thing and to do. In some cases, like saying those references might still hurt when it, when you're saying, I had a substance abuse problem, but I got over it. It's still probably going to hurt you versus someone who didn't have a publicly known substance abuse problem. Absolutely. Yeah, someone who has, you know, clear credit and yeah. the person is going to rent to that person instead. Absolutely. So there's been some studies done comparing this traditional model to the newer model, often called Housing First, that Ashlyn's going to talk about. But some of the some of the research that has come out is has found that approximately forty five to fifty percent of people going through these linear model or treatment first model programs are still housed at say two years or even five years afterwards, whereas people in the housing first type programs are still ho- are housed at an eighty five to ninety percent mark at the five year mark. So that that's just a little bit of how that <laughs> how this this treatment model fares. So as Laura said, the last topic that we're going to touch on is the housing first initiatives. So these programs consider housing to be the primary concern and. They believe that many of the other issues facing people without adequate shelter can be addressed more easily and with more efficacy if we first provide them with a permanent, stable place to live. And as we've talked about this evening, most other models only allow for shelter to be provided once issues like addictions and unemployment are addressed. So you have to be sober and you have to be employed and you have to be basically working on everything else in your life before you have somewhere to sleep at night. Right. Which is extremely unreasonable. (laughs) It's it's very difficult to concentrate on things like that when you have to find somewhere to sleep every night. Absolutely. So Housing First was first attempted in places like New York and California beginning in the late 1980s and early 90s. There were early programs in Vancouver and Toronto as well. It grew out of the philosophy that housing was a human rights issue and that people should be moved as quickly as possible off the streets and into housing without having to jump through hoops uh, like eligibility or compliance with things like sobriety. Most Housing First programs don't simply find places to people to live and then just leave it there. Like, they don't just dump you in an apartment and go, yeah, you have a place to live, now all your problems are solved. Because <laughs> you know, that would also be fairly unreasonable. And that wouldn't work out very well no, for a lot yeah. of people. <laughs> like, they... T- yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of A lot of aspects of the long-term supportive care uh, are also included. Most of these programs will have things like addictions treatment, uh, disability support services, and all kinds of staff available to people. There are some programs even who have people like who are experts in the justice system who can help you out with things because, as we've noted, there's a lot of intertwining of the justice system and things like shelters and and the homeless system because you, you get involved. Everything is... All it's difficult up to together. not get yourself yeah. intertwined in everything. Yeah, Once I mean, you're in the system, you're in the system. Yeah. When sitting outside at the wrong time of day can get you arrested, it's really hard not to get arrested. <laughs> yeah. Uh, residents of Housing First initiatives are generally expected to pay about 30% of their income towards rent. Uh, so most of the statistics I could find on these kinds of programs were US-centric, as we often run into on the show. But there are some interesting ones. So for every person housed through a Housing First initiative, it saves taxpayers between eight and ten thousand dollars a year 
Uh, so those are things like emergency room visits, days incarcerated, detox program fees. So a lot of people have kind of a knee-jerk reaction when we talk about how just giving people housing is the best way to solve homelessness. Because they think, well, that's impossible because it would cost way too much money. But through initiatives like these, we can see that it's, it's actually going to save a ridiculous amount of money. Mm-hmm. Also, there are just tons of available houses in the U.S. and Canada. It's just peopleism. <laughs> uh, yeah, like just look at the uh, barracks. Yeah, they. Can't well, not out. just that. Look at the, all the brand new condos in Toronto that sit empty because there's no buyers. There's housing available, but it's unaffordable, and yeah. that co- and yet there's people sleeping on the street below those empty condos. Yeah. What a ridiculous system! But is the uh, Asper's condo still available? <laughs> Good. <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) You could fit like 30 people in there. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, people will say, well, that couldn't possibly work. It's going to cost way too much money. The evidence just doesn't bear that out. And that doesn't even count the cost in human suffering that isn't accounted for when people are left in the streets or on shelters. Yep. So, I mean, when we're talking about costs, we can also talk about, you know, actual human emotions and trauma that (sighs) are being... (laughs) trampled on. If Adam Smith doesn't account for it, then I don't see why I should. (laughs) (laughs) So in Canada, the at-home or chez-soi program works largely on a housing-first program, and they provide grants to organizations who want to work to find homes for the chronically homeless and so far they've uh, housed about a thousand people they work mostly in five cities including winnipeg which i didn't know so that's cool cool. and they were actually i was surprised and like we were talking about before it's sort of one of those things where once you set out the pros and cons of the program it is largely accepted by both sides of the argument that this is a something that was going to save us money. So this Chez Swap program was actually spearheaded by the conservative government in 2013. So I was pretty impressed by that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes me feel weird in my tummy. <laughs> cognitive dissonance, show, cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Once they decide that money will be saved, they don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not going to make this conversation longer. I'm going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> Brendan and I both over with. So there are a couple of ways that it's typically implemented, and Laura touched on it a little bit too. So there's either you just purchase or build, or sometimes there's arguments that we should just buy hotels, basically, and put people in them. Or there's the scattered site implementation, where the program rents or purchases apartments or homes at regular market value. And that's becoming the like overwhelmingly preferred version, because it gives people a choice in where they want to live and what type of housing they would prefer. And it does also way less stigmatizing. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Because it, you you can't get people going all nimby on you yeah. if, if if things aren't happening in a block. Yeah, I mean, Britain ran into problems like just any sort of differentiating thing. Britain ran into I think it was Britain ran into problems where for housing of refugees, all of the houses that were built for housing refugees, even though they were scattered, they all had red doors. So oh. people worked out that red doors meant refugees, oh. which yeah. <laughs> Wow. But it, but that's a problem when everything looks the same like that. I mean, just in our own city, you can tell what's public housing and what's not just by yeah. looking at the building. Yeah. Right? And, and, and I mean, if you're in the know, if you even give your address to somebody, they're like, oh, that's Manitoba housing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a, a huge stigma that it's hard to get past for some people. Mm-hmm. Buying things at, at regular market rate and just putting people in the types of home they would prefer, in the neighborhood they would prefer, especially when they can be near other kinds of supports like family or Absolutely. near people, near appointments that they need to get to. Like that's such a big deal. Yeah. And it's sort of bypassed when you just make these huge blocks 
of of apartments for people to live in. It's another form of warehousing. Yeah. One of the criticisms of Housing First has been that it doesn't do enough to end substance abuse. So people look at these things and go, well, you're just giving drug addicts homes. What's that going to solve? That's rebutted by most of the statistics that say that the goal, are, and policymakers that say the goal of the program isn't to end substance abuse. The goal of the program is to end homelessness. <laughs> right. So right. they don't well, actually you... care if they end substance abuse. <laughs> My answer was going to be, so what? Yeah. 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 It's like, like people, creationists, complaining that evolution can't account for, you know, the origin of life. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yes. And? (laughs) Yeah. But interestingly, in the studies that have been done, we see that Housing First initiatives actually are largely more successful in that outcome than pretty much anything else. (laughs) (laughs) I will note, there are some conflicting statistics on that. A a lot of them do say that they often do better than the treatment first models. Some will say that they don't do better, but they don't do any worse than treatment first. So if you're looking (laughs) at a program that's not even meant, does just as well as a program that is meant to do substance abuse, that's a Something's happening that's wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Another criticism that I just wanted to touch on was the fact that one size fits all solutions rarely work out. And that's true, but even the most... How dare you attack my segment? (laughs) Even the most, like, strenuous objection will acknowledge that a housing first model should be a part of any solution that's come up. The medicine hat just in the last three years, and I think it was in 2015 that they said that, yeah, they basically have... Nobody is homeless for more than 10 days in Medicine Hat now. And they built a lot of houses. I mean, that can be... I'm sure they can be... There's probably some issues with that, but... (laughs) At the same time, they have, they've integrated their shelter system being triaged and helped to get into new housing within 10 days. Socialism in Alberta? Yeah. Again, my tummy. (laughs) And it's actually, there's some, if you go to the website for this, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. The, The current mayor of Medicine Hat is talking about how much cheaper it is for the city to to do this yeah. and how they were first proposing this he was just a councilman and he opposed it because he's like well why should they get granite countertops and not me and he's like and now i see how silly that was like it, it, he's it's it's a really great turnaround the one thing that yeah. he noted too was that hospital usage went down a lot of the social system uses that are normally very very high costs due to homelessness went down the one thing that went up is that uh, court appearances actually went up <laughs> because people, people showed up, showed up to yeah. court now yeah. they if they had outstanding charges or something they actually went to court they instead actually of just skipping it instead of just skipping it part like now they have an address where they yeah. can actually get the letter about it you know they're ready to do some of the things they couldn't possibly deal with when they just had to figure out where am i going to sleep tonight yeah. but yeah so there's a city a whole city in canada that's working on this mm-hmm. yeah. first and i think call. utah has also implemented it basically across the state with really great results Yeah, great. So I think the main thrust of the show is that everybody deserves to have somewhere to sleep at night and we should give everybody enough money so that they can live and also communism. (laughs) <laughs> so so we've also determined that uh, this show is left-leaning for Canada. So for our international listeners, I apologize. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I think everyone wants to be an internationalist. 
I don't apologize. I'm not sorry for this. So, Jem, what are we going to be speaking about on our next show? Oh, boy. Okay, so I was going to talk about scientific racism, like ideas like eugenics and certain claims about human biodiversity that are... that book that are common in the tech sphere for some reason these days. But like a lot of Ashland's picks, this month has been a pretty heavy one. Damn you for talking about things that are actually important. (laughs) So maybe we'll talk about cryptozoology instead. Although a quick trip to Google tells me that God's Not Dead 2 is playing in the theater across the street in 90 minutes. (laughs) Who wants to go? Well, thanks for listening to the show and thanks for joining me, everybody. I think it was a great show. Yeah, thanks for coming on again, Brendan. It's always nice to have you. It was my pleasure. We appreciate your research and your book lists. <laughs> you make the rest of us look like chumps. Yes. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. They're jovial. <laughs> How is this gross? I'm just smoothing my mustache. No, it you read Wheel of Time. Uh-huh. You've 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 read Robert Jordan describing people as knuckling their mustaches over and over and mm-hmm. over again. Well, I also okay, don't really I know how I'm supposed to cross my time. arms below my breasts, which is something that women in Wheel of Time do constantly. If I did that, it would hurt me. <laughs> Only people that are built like me when I'm not pregnant can do that. <laughs> there. There. Ow. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so you might sort of be wondering how we got to this state. And well, you just told me it was FDR and then we stopped spending money on good things. Yeah, Sorry, but... I thought we were still talking about my beard. <laughs> Uh, well, I was. It was. It was going to be a long derailment, but Jem has has cut me off at the pass. This, this episode is an intervention. Like a proud foot, I've always maintained that my last name should best be pluralized "New Men." But uh, uh, I'm I'm getting off. Newsmen. Oh my god! On topic, Jem. On topic. I want to go for supper. Before I talk about politics, I just want to encourage all of no! our listeners to Google the picture of Sam Altman wearing two polo shirts at once because it is glorious. Hey, this this segment was uh, signed by Ashlyn. I take no responsibility. <laughs> no, you picked it from a list. Good lord, we're going to get so many people unsubscribing from this communist podcast. Uh, <laughs> Anarchism and communism are different things, although I, there I, is anarcho-communism. I know. Uh, capitalism. No, no, just, no. Just I, to fin- I, let I, me finish my point. No, I just want to say I like the idea of all of the anarchists unsubscribing because you just su- suggested that <laughs> communism is the same thing. I did and not. And it's like, did you learn nothing from the Spanish Civil War?